Romantic, pedantic, and hypothetical, semantic and frantic, real or theoretical. They give you the stats and they give you the news. It's a baseball podcast you should choose. Effectively Wild is here for you. About all the weird stuff that players do. Authentically strange and objectively styled. Let's play ball. It's Effectively Wild. It's Effectively Wild. It's Effectively Wild. Hello and welcome to episode 2031 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm all right. How's Seattle? Oh, man, it's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Sunny skies. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, not for the entirety of the the derby, but um, very, very nice. We're we're tricking everyone. This is our bit, you know, bring (laughs) people here in the summer. Everyone's like, it's wonderful. And and then they move here, and then it's it's December. Come come settle in Seattle. (laughs) Yeah, actually, December isn't, December is not when you contemplate your life choices in Seattle, because like, you know, it's dark, but it's December. It's understood to be a, a a kind of bleak uh, weather time, but you have all sure. the holiday lights, right? So mm-hmm. you're like, oh, this is twinkly and magical. February is when you're like, what did I do voluntarily, though? That's <laughs> that's when that sets in. Yeah, that's true of February in a lot of places, I think. Yeah, I suppose it's, that's true. It's yeah. not our best month, but this is <laughs> uh, an exciting week, and you've gotten to go to the various all-star events. So. Yes. I am going to be talking to Eric Loggenhagen, who has also been out there about the draft. You have to attend a BBWAA meeting during I do. that time. Your I do. Uh, schedule is constrained by all the fun events that you're getting to go to, or the less fun but maybe important <laughs> events also. So, What are you talking about? Those BBWA <laughs> meetings are a laugh riot. <laughs> so Famous gambling, for that. Gambling is going to be discussed. Sports betting. Yes. I mean, so every year the the commissioner and uh, the head of the MLBPA uh, give the assembled BBWA members um, some time mm-hmm. at the at the All-Star break. This is a, a little tradition that we have. Um, and we don't normally do business at that meeting because, you know, unlike the winter meetings, a relatively small percentage of the membership is uh, is at the All-Star break. But we are in contemplating what steps we as a body need to take uh, to maintain uh, our integrity and the appearance of our integrity, which I think is um, equally important in matters uh, such as this, as it pertains to, to gambling and gambling mm-hmm. content. So mm-hmm. I don't think we're, like, making any... Big moves, um, yeah. but we might be authorizing some some study uh, uh-huh. uh, and contemplation of the question, which I, um, as our listeners will be unsurprised to learn, find uh, quite important. So yeah. I was like, Ben, I'm sorry. I would I would love to talk about all of the the bright young men who are joining the affiliated ranks, mm-hmm. but uh, I gotta go. I gotta go do do some biz. So well, I'm gonna go I'm a known do that biz. Amateur baseball expert, so we'll be in good hands <laughs> for that segment. You <laughs> but, know, I uh, think that one of the one of the nice things about getting Eric to talk about the draft is that he's sort of like the the spinning uh, little top in Inception. You just gotta yes. get him going, and he'll he'll <laughs> yeah. guide you. Don't worry. I could just say, "So the draft," and he yeah. would probably <laughs> go on for an hour or so, and we'd be done. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, great. I. 
I can offer some draft thoughts in terms of how it has evolved as an event, if yeah, you are please. interested mm-hmm. in those. You know, I will say that I was initially skeptical about the location of the draft because they're like, we're holding it on the field at Lumen Field, which is the the stadium where the Seahawks play and also um, Seattle's two uh, pro soccer teams. And I thought, well, that's a sure big space. And, uh, you know, how many people are going to the draft? What That's going to look weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it did not. Once again, I don't want to encourage uh, MLB in its decision-making because I – I remain convinced that the only person who wants the draft to be in July uh, is is the commissioner because mm-hmm. the, the team personnel they hate it, Ben. You know yeah. they they hate it strongly. They think it's um, they think it's a bad decision. The uh, folks who cover prospects very closely they don't like it because you know you can't concentrate on the futures game when the the drafts the next day. It's not at an ideal point in the calendar, but. It is at an ideal point in the calendar insofar as there were a lot of people there, Ben. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And not just in the in the little section immediately in front of the stage, but they had like seating in the couple of sections um near the north end zone. There were a lot of people in those. They were they were full up. I mean, folks started to trickle out after the Mariners had made their first round picks, but it was full. They had a bunch of play ball stuff down on the field and so it didn't feel like this you know weird tiny pimple of a set in the <laughs> in the greater landscape of of lumen mm-hmm. um so uh it, it was good we did not roast in the sun like last year i did not feel like an ant um being you know held captive under my uh, magnifying glass so yeah i get that piece of it but i maintain that if you were to tell a bunch of sports fans, hey, come do a sports thing, they'd do it in June. And I still think that the really good venue for the draft is just they should hold it in Omaha during the College World Series. Because you know who's crazy about college baseball players? College baseball fans. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're (laughs) enthusiastic. Anyone particularly impress you at the Futures game? Um. No. <laughs> uh-huh. It was um it was a I would say a down year um for the futures game. I think that the league should like contemplate the question, what do we what do we want this event to do? You know, what do we think having a, a basically a minor league all-star game? What is it meant to accomplish? Because it continues to be just seven innings which felt very fast this year because, you know, they have the pitch clock mm-hmm. um, and you're getting a, a fresh arm kind of every half inning. And so guys are throwing hard. They're striking dudes out. Um, it, it, you know, I I don't – I think that it is a worthwhile endeavor to, like, highlight future stars, Right. Hence the name Futures sure. Game. Mm-hmm. But when you when you compress it to seven innings so that you can get the celebrity soft, softball game in, it suggests that like th- the game is not taking itself seriously. And so I don't know how you then expect you know fans and whatnot to take it seriously. So that's that's kind of where I'm at. Although they did um, they did show everyone the challenge system. Yes, then. that's and right. And so uh, if 
if for no other reason than that, it was a rousing success because I think I, I overheard the people, Ben, the people being like, oh, that's, that's nifty. And I was like, it is. This is my best take. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, you're getting the, the man on the street, the people on the street reaction. And it yeah. was positive. That's yeah, encouraging. So fast, Ben. It's just so mm-hmm. fast. Yeah. So. And did you also get to attend the Home Run Derby? I did attend the Home Run Derby. Um, boy, was that cool, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a, I, I'll say that like when you're from a place, you know about it, you know, you can appreciate like the areas in which the city has like tried to, you know, maybe dress itself up so that it impresses out of town visitors. And I think that that's an understandable impulse. It does sort of mean that like, I know that the city of Seattle has like, maybe done some sweeps of uh, places where unhoused folks live. So there's like a, you know, there's this tension that exists around really big, exciting sporting events like this, where you're like, you're aware of um, the the excitement, you feel that, but you're also conscious of like the <laughs> maybe failures of municipal government that the city's mm-hmm. trying to cover up. Um, so like, you know, you do have to sit with that even as you're very excited and I just had a delightful time at the Derby. I was incredibly nervous that I would die a foul uh, home run related death, rather, um, because even though the only um, hitter in the Derby to take left-handed swings was Rutschman, he was uh, he was getting them up there. And yeah. I got to say, during the during the Futures game BP. There were there were some balls launched into the ox box with uh, w- with great force, <laughs> and uh, it was not as dramatic as say um, what happened at the All Star Game at Coors, where it felt like there was a non-zero chance of a, a baseball writer taking one to the head. But um, yes. here were my highlights uh, from the Derby. <laughs> the the uh, most dangerous I, place to be was clearly being one of the ball shaggers while Vlad oh, was yeah. hitting. <laughs> yeah, that kid definitely, yeah. like a kid definitely got yeah. beamed, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. They're okay from what I've heard. But okay. but yes, they, they just got leveled by a liner. You know, from, from my vantage, I had very clear view of the kids shagging uh, fly balls. But like I turned back to home plate and so it was it was a very startling image because then when I looked back to the outfield this kid was just lying there and I yeah. was like oh oh dear mm-hmm. um uh they did get up and walk off under their own power which was yeah. um a, a huge relief mm-hmm. um but yeah just motionless on the field for a minute which was mm-hmm. <laughs> um dis- disturbing to see um yeah. but yeah, go ahead. It, it is very important that you say flies after you talk about watching kids on the field shagging. Just to complete complete the sentence, I think is uh, is crucial there. But yeah, you you were talking about your your highlights. Highlights. Yeah, yes. that was not one of them. That was not one of them. Adley um, switching to hit right handed. That was, was so cool. Like very I, cool. I, I don't know if that has happened before in a derby. If it has, please someone inform us because I know there have been switch hitters in the Derby, yes. but they typically pick a side and stick to it. Like yes. going back to 1960, the Home Run Derby show, Mickey Mantle was in it. I believe he batted from the right side exclusively. And then there have been times like 
Lance Berkman, when he was in the Derby, right. he hit just batted right-handed because he had more power from the right side. And also it was in Minute Maid Park and he wanted to take advantage of the short porch over there. That was 2004. I think usually a switch hitter has more power from one side. And that is true for Adley as well. He has more power from the left side. But you would think that in a derby, there might be some advantage to doing what he did because we saw guys get winded, right? Like, the thing about the derby now is that there's so many home runs hit, so many more than there used to be. This was a record this year, and that's good, I guess. Uh, you watch the home run derby, you want to see a lot of home runs. That's that kind is, of the point of the that exercise. That is the point of the derby, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but also what we used to think was miraculous and extraordinary in terms of the number of home runs hit, like Josh Hamilton hitting 28 in a round in the 2008 derby. It was like, oh my God, and now that happens every time. <laughs> I mean, someone matches or rivals or exceeds that kind of commonplace. So you would think if you're taking that many swings and you can see guys get winded and they're sweaty and they're taking timeouts and everything, that it would be advantageous to be able to turn around and hit from the other side. It's like we've answered emails about if you had an ambidextrous pitcher, could he just kind of pitch every day, right? Because, you know, you, he rests from one side and then pitches from the other side. And maybe it doesn't quite work that way. You're still using the same parts of, of your body to do some of the motions in pitching. And the same is true for hitting, I guess. But still, you would think you'd be relatively fresh from the other side if you could turn around. And he did hit seven homers or something, right, in the right. 30 seconds after he turned around. So it, yes. it seemed to work. It, he yes. came up just short. A Rosarena yeah. hit one more home run than he did in that round and eliminated him. But as a proof of concept, it seems yes. like, hey, okay, this is this is a life hack for switch hitters in the home run derby. Well, and I think that, and this is, this is true, I think, of most of the fields this year. It felt like there was a real appreciation for and willingness to lean into like the showmanship of the event yeah. in a way that like it, it's, it, that's what it's there for. It's yes. there for you to see a bunch of big strong guys hit a bunch of balls real far. And if they can add some flair to it when they do it, like it makes it fun and dynamic and like the vibe in T-Mobile when he switched sides was like, people were like, ah, you know, yeah. like, he knew what he was doing. Like, it, mm -hmm. it's like, give the people what they want. They want to see a hit switch. Right. And then everyone in the ox box was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you can't see the hitters sometimes get in a rhythm, right? Yes. Like they're hitting a bunch of grounders or liners and then suddenly they lock it in. Flips. and they're yes. Yeah. So, so the idea that like there's no, uh, I don't know, hot hot hand when it comes to the home run derby, at least. I, I think it seems like there is, right? You yeah. you just kind of get the stroke and then you, <laughs> you keep it for a while. But yeah. I, I guess if you're switch hitting, I don't know how much he practiced doing it from both sides. I guess right. he's always hitting from, from both sides. But if you got locked in from one side and then you had to turn around, maybe the mojo wouldn't carry over and maybe right. that wouldn't be worth the fact that that you are fresh yeah, from a, that side. So it's a high a high stakes move. It is. Yeah. But also a really entertaining one. And as you said, that is the point. So yeah. So yeah, three hundred forty one homers hit. The previous record was three twelve, which was in twenty nineteen. 
2019, which was the peak juiced ball year, at least in in MLB. Maybe they're still using the 2019 balls. Just you know, break some of those yeah. out for the home run derby these days. Well, especially <laughs> in T-Mobile, where it's like mm-hmm. you know, it's a hard. It's obviously goes better for right-handed hitters, but like it's not yeah. the easiest park to hit in in baseball mm-hmm. or anything like that. Yeah, and obviously there's a extreme era effect when it comes to the home run derby. And you look at some of the earlier ones where like a handful of homers were hit. It's like, what was the point of having a home run derby when like five homers were hit? But now, I don't know, is it too many homers? I think the only way it's too many is that it can be kind of confusing on the broadcast where I, I've been to one home run derby in person and I, I do find that it's better in person just because you get to appreciate the whole arc of the homer and the majesty of it and you get to track things more easily than you can. I, I was kind of, I had like a split screen for a while of the ESPN and ESPN2 broadcast, the StatCast broadcast on ESPN2. Each of those broadcasts was a split screen. So I had a split screen of, of split screens, but I find them both kind of confusing in different ways. The StatCast broadcast, obviously uh, appreciate the commentary and our pal Mike Petriello and all the, the data that they bring to the exercise. I'm not so into home run derby predictions and analysis. I don't necessarily need that with my derby. I just kind of want to watch some some big guys. Some dingers. Swing. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but yeah. but but it, it's a little busy. There are a lot of graphics and displays, and it looks like CNET or something, you know. And I, I want more screen real estate. And also, I think. Uh, we talked at some time about how I was advocating for having exit velocity numbers like live in games, like on regular baseball broadcasts that usually you see the pitch speed when the pitch goes in there and maybe you see the little dot on the strike zone display. And I was saying I would like to see exit speed on batted balls because sometimes there are moments where you see a ball off the bat and you can't tell what's going to happen and where it's going to go. And I thought it would add some information if we could get to see the readouts like in that moment. And I think that is true. However, having seen that in action on the StackCast broadcast, they had that. They had the exit speed and the launch angle on every swing. And I found that it actually reduced the suspense of the exercise. Like I could tell with great accuracy just based on the combination of exit speed and launch angle whether it was going to be a home run, right? Because, you know, there's sort of a sweet spot for those things and there are balls on the margin that may or may not go out. But you see some combinations of exit speed and launch angle, at least if you're used to looking at (laughs) exit speeds and launch angles and you know, oh, okay, that's almost certainly going to be a home run. And it was like, I didn't need to see where the ball went or anything because uh, it was like a spoiler almost, which I guess is what I was saying. That was why I was advocating for it originally. It's like, hey, I I could get some information from this. I could glean something from this that I can't always tell off the bat. But now having seen that in action, at least in the Derby, I feel like maybe that suspense is actually a good thing. Maybe I, I want to preserve that 
non-knowledge of what's going to happen as we switch from the center field camera to then seeing where the ball's going to go and where the fielders are and everything, that momentary uncertainty of, is that going to go? Where's that going to end up? I think that might actually enhance my enjoyment of the broadcast. So I got to say, I having seen it, uh, I got what I wanted and uh, now, be careful now what you wish for, I guess. More guy. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that... Um Maintaining a little bit of the mystery there is nice, and I'm a, I'm just generally an advocate for obstructing as little of the the broadcast view as possible. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I think that that's right. Right, and it, it's hard. Like on that, they had an angle kind of uh, from behind home plate and off to the side, so you could see the swing and the initial trajectory, but you couldn't necessarily tell where the ball was going to end up. I do kind of prefer just the standard center field view just because that's what I'm used to in games. And so I can get the best read of where the ball's going to go just based on my experience of having seen so many swings from that vantage point on TV. But then on the regular ESPN broadcast, they didn't have all the bells and whistles, which in a way was almost a relief to me, surprisingly. But then I still find it kind of tough to scan as a spectator because one reason why there are so many homers now, it's all about the format and the balls, but it's also about the fact that they don't really seem to enforce the old rule that that one ball had to land before the pitcher goes into their motion, right? And maybe that's a good thing because, again, you get more dingers. You got to era adjust these inflated home run totals here, but you get more homers. However, it does make it very tough to track at home when you're watching. It's like, wait, which ball is that like which swing correlates to that ball and which one is that and where's that is that gonna go like there's no time you can't follow every ball for its full arc and and see oh yep it just stuck over the fence or wow it ended up way up there because there's already another pitch on the way or another ball in motion like the hang time you know can be several seconds so there's already going to be more action going on and it's just so frenetic that from home, I can't really follow it that well. And and also the StatCast broadcast, instead of showing you the full trajectory of the ball, it would show you like the StatCast projection of where the ball was going to go, which I'm sure is pretty darn accurate, but also was just a little less satisfying to me to see a line arcing instead of seeing the actual ball sail out. So for all those reasons, I don't know if this is a critique of the broadcast or just saying it's inherently hard to do this well with this current format, which is good on the whole, but does make it tough from a spectator perspective. And that's why I envy you getting to be there, because I think you can take in the whole sweep of the stadium and, and follow these things more easily when you can control where you're where looking. looking. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that was one of the the very cool things about where the auxiliary press box was. You know, we're out in right field and because, you know, most of the field was hitting from the right side, like you just had a perfect view of the the arc and trajectory of the ball. And so you could tell so easily, like, yeah, that one's out, that one's not. Um, and, you know, you you do lose sight even then of some of them because you're right, they're they're absolutely not enforcing the rule of, like, it has to <laughs> land. You, they're just going, going, going. Um, so they're launching so many of them that you don't get to see absolutely everything. But it is, I think, the optimal place for that, particularly if you're going to end up 
with a field that is so heavily leaning to one side of of the the batter's box in terms of handedness. So, yeah, it was it was very cool. And then of course, like, I mean. He didn't win, and it was a <laughs> Julio's performance reminded me a little bit. This is such a strange comp of you know the 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 John Mulaney bit about going too big too fast on a sign, <laughs> <laughs> where it was like, yeah, when you're when you're breaking a, a record in terms of um, home runs in a single round, you're probably going to be too wiped to advance mm-hmm. later on. But mm-hmm. boy, boy, Ben, that that man's the king of Seattle, uh, yeah. <laughs> like that ballpark responding to Julio he knew exactly like when to to get him stoked and you know of course after they're talking to him on the broadcast and he's talking about how you know the fans the fans are so great it was it was so it was very cool to see I was like yeah pretty Mm -hmm. uh pretty neat that that guy's just like a forever mariner um because talk about getting in a rhythm like Man, if there is if there is technique uh, to the Derby, he he's up there. He's up there with you know Alonzo and mm-hmm. and other guys who have kind of gotten it dialed in. And you know one of the one of these years he might actually win it. But for a guy who hasn't won two years in a row, he has to be one of the more memorable Derby participants. Yep. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's always fun to see the intergenerational interactions yes. like Julio with uh, Derby legend Ken Griffey Jr., of yes. course, and uh, also players with their kids and their families. Uh, even yeah. better if those kids then grow up to win the Home Run Derby someday, like Vladimir Guerrero Jr., following in the footsteps of his father. So it was fun on the broadcast to see images of little Vlad attending his father's Home Run Derby heroics. But yeah, it does seem like Often the really indelible performances from the Home Run Derby are not by the winner because uh, it's guys who exhaust themselves like Julio hitting 41 in a round and then maybe they burn out a little bit. But you still remember that show they put on and maybe in future years there's going to be like a Mandela effect of like, well, I thought Julio won that one, right? right. Like, much like there was with Vlad when yeah, I was he, just about to say. Yeah, he put on that show in 2019 yeah. and didn't actually win and this time I guess he had a more measured pace. I don't know whether it's because he's a, a derby veteran now and he knows that it's better to pace himself or whether it just worked out that way but this was more, not slow and steady, but you know, medium and, and steady wins the race, right? Because he still had a little left in the tank at the end. And I did think that Rosarena was going to catch him because he had to hit four in that final 30 seconds, right? And and he hit uh, two early and, and then sort of lost it at the very end there. But there was suspense at the last moment. So it was a fun derby. It's usually a fun derby these days. Yeah, I think that they I think that they really have it figured out. You know, we we are quick to say when they don't, but like they they know exactly what that event is, and they know what like the guiding principle of it should be, which is let's make this just like a fun, cool time. And you know, I think it's easier to get that sorted and to lean into it when it's something when it's like a a single track event like the Derby as opposed to the All Star Game, which you know, even after all these years, I think is still like trying to find itself in a way, (laughs) you know, to be like a big memorable thing. But the, the Derby, they, they know what they're, they know what they're doing. And I think there's, I think there's a lot to be said for having 
a, a hometown guy in it because it does add a charge that, um, you know, I think is pretty special. And <laughs> can I actually, I, I want to, I want to give a nod to what might be my mm, fourth or fifth favorite derby performance from last night, because, you know, Adley hitting switch was so cool and Julio doing Julio stuff was so cool. And like the surgical precision of Luis Robert Jr. Just like going up there and going bang, 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 mm-hmm. you know, and Randy doing Randy stuff. I'm still disappointed he didn't put boots on. They should have given him a, a separate time break in the final round so that he had time to be like, no, no, now I must put on the boots. You know, mm-hmm. like they, they should have given special dispensation for that. But <laughs> can we talk about Mookie just being like, I'm not winning. Yeah. I'm just going to take batting practice. <laughs> I'm not using my time. I'm going to do this because my wife said I should and I'm not going to win. And that's fine. You know, mm-hmm. it's I'm 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 here. Mm-hmm. I am participating, uh, but I don't need to make this longer than it has to be. I was just like, this <laughs> This man has my respect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I wish uh, Zach Cram was telling me that uh, as uh, someone who is not vertically blessed himself, I suppose, that uh, he always pulls for the smaller guys in the home run derby and that he's disappointed that there haven't been more home run derby short kings that they have often come up short sadly because it it would be fun to see someone like Mookie just go off right because it's one of the things we like about baseball is that uh, all kinds of body types can excel in different ways and a lot of players like Mookie have found a way to harness their power even if their raw power isn't uh, quite as prodigious as some bigger guys so it would be nice to see someone like him just catch fire in the derby but it didn't happen and he accepted it and that was fine so yes i appreciated his uh, his approach his philosophy toward the derby as well yeah i thought i was like you know this is this is a man who knows himself and is you know because you're like you're mookie bets you've won an mvp you've won a world series you are uh, uh, I think it's safe to say on uh, on your way to Cooperstown one day, you don't have to win everything. It's fine, you know. You can just do do uh, a little BP. He hit some home runs, you know, and uh, and then make way for the the participants who everyone kind of expected to actually uh, have a chance. Is is good. Is good. Pete Alonso looked so sad. I didn't. I didn't uh, get to see his face until I saw some like clips of the Derby later, and I was just like, "Oh, poor Pete," because I'm sure you know that that he does not strike me as a guy who's like, "I've already won this twice. No, I can be just, at peace." He takes it so seriously. I worry so about seriously. him when he doesn't do well. <laughs> I know. I was like, "Oh no, Pete, you're gonna be sad today." Yeah, it's like it's not like the Mets season is going so great either, right. and. It's like the the calendar for Alonzo, it seems to really revolve around the home run derby. I mean, it's like if that doesn't go well, it's like, you know, if if Joey Chestnut choked on a hot dog or something, it's like you've been you've been planning your whole year for this and it, it didn't go the way you wanted. It did for Joey Chestnut, but but not for Alonzo, but I'm sure he'll be back. It's not his uh, last derby and his last crack at this thing. So I look forward to your review of the rest of All-Star Week next time and 
we can talk about the All-Star game then, and we can uh, get your report on the proceedings at the BBWA meeting. And who knows, maybe there will be some fun Rob Manfred quotes to talk about, because <laughs> uh, whenever Rob Manfred speaks, uh, you know, he always uh, just really is the best ambassador for the game and uh, is never caught flat-footed and, and uh, surprised by a question that he seemed unprepared to answer, and things never get testy, you know, he's just polished, it just always comes comes out the way that that you would want it to come out just nothing unanticipated so maybe there will be nothing to talk about but who knows maybe he'll surprise us especially you know um coming a couple of days after getting you know booed for several hours by fans <laughs> and then yeah. having to you know bob and weave a little bit with respect to like uh you know how the fans interacted with the Astros uh mm-hmm. draft picks being announced <laughs> Ben I I had forgotten to mention this like hat tip to the fans uh at Lumen many of whom were Mariners fans I don't know what they expected like of course the Astros are going to get booed you're in you're in the the hometown of a division rival, uh, and people have long memories. So, you know, they're booing the mm-hmm. announcement of these Houston picks. <laughs> yeah. And Manfred did seem um, kind of flustered by the the intensity of the boos. And then he announces that Raul Banias is going to announce the second round, and instantly there is a flip to, yay! <laughs> and I was just like, you know, you got it, you got it dialed. Everybody, they they kept booing Manfred every time he came to the podium, but people had their timing down right. It was like they wanted to make it clear, we are booing the commissioner, we are not booing these young men on their big day. And they would, as soon as he made the uh, announcement of the pick, would, you know, pivot uh, and and cheer for for them. So I was like, you know, well done. You guys got your. You know, it's like a beautifully staged, managed play. Everybody's hitting their marks. It was, it was uh, if you're going to do it, that's the way to do it. You know, we're not boo, we're not boo people. We talked about that. But if you're going to do it, be discerning. You know, it's like how everyone wishes that there were different horns uh, in a car so that you have the like, hey, you're going to hit me. And hey, you got to go at the light. And, you know, hey, I like your sign on the side of the road. You know, we need different we need different buttons. Yeah. That's a car. That's a car reference. Ben. I, I know those it. are yes. yeah, hard <laughs> for you sometimes. I've heard the horns. But yeah, that's a time-honored draft tradition, of course, booing the commissioner, not just in baseball, not just Manfred, but this was a, a particularly just <laughs> this performance was uh, there was a lot of a lot of pep and as you said, a lot of coordination behind this one. So, all right. And I guess the only slight disappointment of the events uh, so far is that Ellie De La Cruz has not been involved in any of them. He was, of course, invited to participate in the Home Run Derby, which would have been fun. And he said, you know, I'm focusing on being a Cincinnati Red in my rookie season, which is fine. But, of course, uh, over the weekend, we did not get a chance to discuss his latest highlight, his latest way of breaking baseball, which was his stealing now, there have been a number of pedantic debates that I have seen and, and appreciated about what exactly happened here because uh, I've seen it described that he stole all the bases, right, which uh, technically is uh, incorrect. He did not steal first base, right? And uh, I guess we've had the discussion about whether home plate is in fact a base again, and we probably don't need to revisit that one. But also descriptions of what he did exactly – because some people described it as stealing three bases 
in two pitches and other people pointed out no it was actually three pitches right he he stole the bases in a span of three pitches there was a, a pitch in the middle where he did not steal any bases but he also stole the three on two pitches right there were two pitches that transpired and he stole the three bases on those two pitches which is more impressive the fact that he advanced multiple bases when only one pitch had been thrown that is part of what made the feat so special and of course he took advantage of a pitcher Piguero, who was uh, not paying close attention and, and he reminded them that hey i'm ellie de la cruz and you got to pay attention to me at all times right and it was impressive however you describe it. And maybe the best way to describe it is just that he stole all the bases you can steal while one batter was at the plate, which I think is special. And it was described by some people as the first time since Rod Carew had done that in 1969. But I saw a clarification from the Twitter account OptiStats that actually that was not the same thing, that in that Carew case, he stole the last couple of bases with Leo Cardenas batting and the steal of second came with Kilbrew, Harmon Kilbrew at the plate. So it was not quite the same. And to go back to what exactly happened here, all of the bases being stolen while one batter was at the plate, apparently if to go back to 1915 when Red Faber did it, who was a, a pitcher for the White Sox and he was just allowed to do it by the A's as a stall tactic because there was a storm brewing and the game wasn't <laughs> yet. So I don't know if it was unprecedented or it hadn't happened in a century. This exact thing just had not gone down in a very long time. And it was really cool. I mean, he's just, he's the it guy of MLB right now. Like, I don't know if he's the best prospects or the best rookie this season. I don't even know if he's the best on his own team. There's some stiff competition there. And and you've got Corbin Carroll doing his thing and being super fast as well. But th there's just some quality of Ellie that is extremely magnetic, right? And it's not just that he has the raw tools, which he does. You go to the Baseball Savant page and you see 98th percentile in max exit velocity, 100th percentile in sprint speed, and 98th percentile in arm strength. <laughs> it's like, that, that's that's the trio right there. That's the trifecta. Like, if he were a, an outfielder, he'd be throwing even harder, probably. I mean, it's just ridiculous tools, but then also instincts and flair. And that's yeah. what he brings that maybe there's no percentile slider for that on Baseball Savant. Right. But if there were, he'd be maxing that out too. Yeah, and like clearly just the way that those tools all interact with one another, the way that he is combining, you know, instinct with like a heady baseball acumen. Like it's just a really fun combination of things um, and taken in concert with him being 20 feet tall. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, you know, he is, he is striking, you know, he is mm -hmm. striking both in the way that he is playing and just in his physical presence. Um, and so I, I also think it's super fun to have, you know, you have the contrast of like Ellie being as big as he is with his speed. And then you have like 
Corbin being, you know, a little speed guy. It's just, I don't know. I feel like we're mm-hmm. we're in a really fun um, window of these guys and their play, both individually and then when, when taken in concert. Like, yeah. I, this isn't, you know, there there have been really great rookie seasons. It's not like we had great rookie seasons last year. Like, every year mm-hmm. you have guys emerge and, and sort of be what we – anticipated they would be when they were highly ranked as prospects. But I do think that just in terms of like the aesthetic quality, it's a very cool year for that. Cause mm-hmm. they're just, you know, they're just a bunch of big and small fast guys who mm-hmm. also are all these other things. I don't know. It's just yeah. really cool. It's and the cool. fact that, that his arrival has coincided with the Reds winning as many games as they have over that span, which Obviously, you can attribute entirely to Ellie, and yet it's easy to talk yourself into it being entirely Ellie. It's like, oh, it's just a different vibe, a different attitude. And you could look at his stats and and you could think, oh, he's uh, flying a little close to the sun right now, right? Like he's struck out a lot. He strikes out a lot more than he walks, and he's got a 440 BABIP, and his uh, expected weighted on base is 78 points lower than his weighted on base. Like, is there going to be some correction? coming or is he just so talented that he will improve the expected stats as time goes on i don't know like i you watch him and it's hard even to say like this is unsustainable and be a wet blanket about it because he's just so much fun that you're like if anyone could just kind of defy gravity <laughs> then it, it would be ellie de la cruz who seems to defy physics he's just so speedy well, right, and has to defy gravity every day, just so uh, you know, walking around. <laughs> yes, gotta yes. gotta do it walking around. So mm-hmm, exactly. And the only other bit of news I wanted to mention, yeah, there was a combined no hitter by the Tigers uh, over the weekend. Congrats to them. But also, the Yankees made a coaching change which uh, normally would not be big news. Uh, Teams are often making in-season coaching changes, but not the Yankees under Brian Cashman. They have literally never done it, I believe, since he took over as GM officially in 98. I don't think he's ever made a mid-season coaching change, which... As a matter of principle, I, I kind of respect, I admire. It's like, uh, hey, not going to make a knee-jerk move here. We evaluated this person as the best. I, I guess it could speak to being too passive and too patient, or it could speak to a, an admirable patience, or it could be sort of a, a reaction to, hey, we need some time to evaluate this, and we'll think about it in the off-season when we have time to consider these things without responding to the heat of the moment. And so the fact that they made a change here and they fired their hitting coach, Dylan Lawson, who came highly acclaimed and was seen as sort of a new-aged guy and very into all the new ways of analysis and everything, and things have not gone so great for the Yankees offense, certainly over the last season and a half, right? And they are just no-shows when Aaron Judge is not in the lineup, basically. They've been one of the worst hitting teams since he got hurt. It's just a a bleak-looking offense. You just have these old guys like Josh Donaldson, who hits a home run every now and then, but nothing else. (laughs) It's just like a sub-100 BABIP, just such a strange season. And then you have Giancarlo Stanton, who's been barely better than replacement level over the past year and just doesn't look like he's that playable in the field anymore and isn't that durable. And 
as a DH isn't doing the hitting part so much anymore either. And guys like Rizzo, it, it just, you know, LeMayhew, just aging hitters who appear to be past it. And then some young guys who haven't really delivered the way that I think the Yankees were hoping they would. So you look at this collection of hitters and it's like, is that Dylan Lawson's fault? Who knows? And the Yankees are not prone to just making, you know, sacrificial lamb type moves with coaches and, and having scapegoats. And so the fact that they did hear that Cashman made this exception and that he was the one messaging this, I don't know what that means, whether he feels less secure in his own position now that that he felt like he had to toss a coach to the wolves to preserve himself, which he's never really had to do because his uh, job security has, has been unprecedented for almost any GM really or executive in history or whether there was something that just really wasn't clicking in this case or what. But I don't know. They hired Sean Casey, who's been on MLP Network, and it's just kind of like an outside perspective, and we'll bring him in for the rest of the season and see how that goes. They didn't even have that hiring in place when they fired Lawson. So I look at that offense, and it just it feels like the success of the Yankees' offense is really riding on whether Aaron Judge is a part of it more so than who's the hitting coach, which does not mean that a dismissal wasn't warranted. It's just like this group of guys— I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if anyone could make much of them. It's hard to know from the outside, right? Like, it's just an odd thing to have to parse as someone who's not, you know, in the room with these guys every day. I think the part of it that I find the most striking is, like, there really isn't an internal candidate you want to elevate to that mm. role if you're doing a let's try it and see, like, even just on an interim basis. I mean, I'm sure that you know, that's easy for me to say because I'm not worried about then disrupting, like, the goings-on, say, in the minors. Like, if there's someone in your player dev, your broader player dev umbrella who you're like, well, that that person is, like, a, a future, you know, big league coach. Let's bring him up for a couple of months. Like, maybe you don't want to must things um, mm-hmm. at the lower levels. But it is striking to be like, here's someone with no coaching experience. Right, yeah. Good luck. Yeah. You know, it just, it feels, in, if you're going to make that move in season, it feels incongruous then to elevate or to hire someone rather who isn't, you know, an obvious like upgrade. And mm-hmm. again, we don't know all the goings on behind the scenes. It could be that there was just discord that they couldn't sort out or, or what have you, but it is odd to then be like, you know, it would be one thing if they were like, here is we think the brightest hitting mind, we're mm-hmm. bringing that bright hitting mind in to turn mm-hmm. everyone into Aaron Judge. It's like, <laughs> I, I don't know, I, you know, I don't say that to try to to knock him, but it's like, what is the, yeah, the value I, proposition here exactly? There is some subset of Yankees fans who think the team has gotten too analytical or always complains about the home run reliance of the offense, uh, even though that's been shown to be actually a boon to teams in the postseason, not a, a detriment. But 
maybe this is just sort of a sop to them. It's like, okay, you don't want the new age guys. We'll go get Sean Casey. <laughs> you know, he's he's not a new age guy. Uh, he's a former teammate of the manager. Let's see how we do under him. Maybe it's just a, you know, you hire your players manager and then replace him with a disciplinarian or something. It's like eh, maybe the midseason move for the hitting coach doesn't matter all that much, but we could do a vibe shift. We could just go with more of an old school guy and a less analytical guy and just see if anyone responds to that or at least say that we tried it. I don't know. But Lawson had a quote that he gave to The Athletic a a couple months ago that had been bandied about that doesn't sound great, certainly out of context, right? Like it was about how the Yankees lineup wasn't hitting at that point. That was uh, even before Judge got hurt. And Lawson said, we care about winning games, I'm going to do a swear here because he did a swear. I really don't give a shit where we rank in offensive stats as long as we're scoring enough runs to win games. We played the number one team, Tampa, and went toe-to-toe with them. Some could argue that we could have gotten swept. Other people could say we should have swept them. You know which side I stand on. I'm not concerned. We have to do enough to win games. Where we rank is of no concern of mine, whether it's one or 30, as long as we win the game. Which... Okay, we know what he's saying there. He's trying to do a Derek Jeter thing about how uh, all that matters is whether you win, right? But also, it doesn't sound so great when the hitting coach is like, I don't care how we hit. (laughs) It's like, as long as we win, which, sure, of course, if there were a way to consistently win without scoring, then that would be great. Then you'd take it. You know, if you just shut the other team out every time, you only need to score one run a game. And that would be great if that were a repeatable formula. But also when the hitting coach says, I don't give a shit where we rank in offensive stats, like if you want to win games, it is better to rank highly in the offensive stats to score some runs because it's tough to consistently win games without scoring runs. So I know what he was trying to do there, but it doesn't sound so great when your hitting coach is like, I don't care how we hit, (laughs) you know, even if that wasn't exactly what he was trying to say. So that sort of haunted him on on Yankees. Twitter, at least. Yeah, it's uh, it just goes to show, like, never say anything out loud in, <laughs> in view of other people because, yeah. uh, you know, long, <laughs> such long memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tough not to say anything out loud on a podcast, though, when that's uh, the whole job. So we will hope for the indulgence of our audience. And you've got to go to a meeting. So I, I guess I will do the future blast early here. This comes from 2031 and also from Rick Wilbur, who is an award-winning writer, editor, and college professor who has been described as the dean of science fiction baseball. And Rick writes, the top story of 2031 was the 412 batting average for Luisa Rice, one of the great hitters in the game, often compared to Rod Carew for his contact and Ted Williams for his power. Ted Williams for his power, Arise. <laughs> Wait, are we talking about the same guy here? <laughs> is there suddenly, I don't know if this is an alternate future timeline where Arise tapped into Ted Williams-esque power and, and also is still hitting for average? Wow, the things have changed. Arise had flirted with 400 several times before, starting with an impressive 378 in 2023 while still with the Marlins. When the Cardinals acquired him in 2025, Arise responded with that outstanding 392 average and then continued his 
his remarkable hitting in subsequent seasons. Only once in his career has his average been below 300, 294 with the Twins in 2021, and four times in the five seasons before 2031, he'd approached the 400 mark, finally reaching it with room to spare in 2031. His hitting, the Cardinals' stout pitching, wow, things have really changed, and the base running of designated runner Estiori Ruiz, who finished with 127 steals, led the Cardinals to the World Series, their 21st appearance in the Classic, where they dominated the Red Sox to win the series four games to one. Arise the World Series and National League MVP hit 440 in the short series while Ruiz stole 11 bases and scored incredibly in nine of the 11 times that he stole second. 2031 was also the first year that artificial intelligence began to take command of the dugouts of the Atlantic League, taking over the managerial role for half the teams while the other half left their managers in charge. At season's end, the AI skip managers beat the meat managers, as they came to be called, 74% of the time in head-to-head games, and two AI skip teams, the Lancaster Bombers and the High Point Rockers, finished at the top of the North and South Divisions, respectively, and went to the ALPB Championship, won by the Lancaster team in the deciding game of the five-game series. Needless to say, the future looked artificially intelligent as the Atlantic League announced it would adopt the system league-wide for the 2031 season. Hmm. Meat manager is a turn of phrase that's going to just, Ben, it's going to stay with me. I'm not mad about it. I am delighted by the the phrase meat manager, you know, meat manager, meat manager, Ben, meat manager. We have gotten questions about that uh, even before the recent AI sensation just about like, could you – Managed by algorithm, not the off the field parts, the the chemistry parts, the leadership parts of managing, but just the X's and O's in baseball, which, uh, you know, managers maybe are more passive about those things than they used to be. They're not constantly calling for hit and run plays or pitch outs, uh, sack bunts, right? Uh, intentional walks, things that on the whole tended to be counterproductive. So if they're pulling fewer levers now, then uh, I guess the time is ripe for AI skip to come in and, and say, well, here's when to make your pitching change and here's when to send up a, a pinch hitter. You probably could automate that. Again, it's one of the many cases where I wonder you could, but did we stop to ask whether we should? And also, is there any point? Does the make the game more entertaining in some way if uh, there's just an AI managing instead of the meat manager? Probably not, right? The AI skip doesn't get to go out there and argue either, presumably. So maybe they could do as capable a job of it as anyone, but I don't know that uh, it would be better from an entertainment standpoint. Meat manager. Meat (laughs) manager. Yeah. I guess it really depends if you can feed the AI skip with in-game data on, say, the pitches and uh, is the pitcher tiring and and that kind of thing. You could program it with the projections for particular batter-pitcher matchups, but maybe it would have to be offline during the game to be in accord with the, the current rules about communication with the dugout and everything, or maybe that would change to make way for AI skip. Well, maybe future installments of the Future Blast will answer some of these questions. Anyway... Good luck with Mr. Manfred. Thank you. And I will be right back with Eric Longenhagen, also of Fangrass, to discuss the amateur draft. Effectively wild, effectively styled, 
distilled over chilled beats, effectively mild. Follow the plot, Sam's in his garage, Ben put the reverb at 20 in his menage. And after 2,000 episodes, we got more inside jokes than Carrot Top's prop box before he got yoked. All right, I'm back, and I am joined now by Eric Longenhagen, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs, who has uh, all but completed another year of amateur draft coverage. Hello, Eric. Welcome back for the annual post-draft breakdown. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Going well. So... This was a strong field, right? That is the sense I get from reading previews and reviews. This was just a a good crop of prospects. And I don't know whether that is just it's cyclical and some years are better than others or whether this was still the effect of the pandemic and the fact that high school seniors in 2020 may have decided to go back to school and now they're draft eligible again. And so you kind of got almost multiple potential potential classes coming together here. Was that part of why this was a strong field? And and was this one of the strongest or the strongest that you've covered top to bottom? Yeah, I think there probably there are so many variables that have changed over the last couple of years. And, and one of them I do think is that COVID draft, which was just much shorter and very volatile. And there was a certain, you know, slice of high school player from that year's class who ended up going to school. And then three years later, we have like this group and the high school class from uh, this year was like uncommonly strong as well, which, you know, not all, there's only so much money that can go around in any given draft. And so three years from now, the guys who didn't sign this year are going to be part of a college crop that might be uncommonly strong. Certainly, you know, it's more likely that that will be true given that this year's high school group was particularly strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously there's a lot of time between between now and then. But yeah, like this was a, a very exciting group. It really, the high school class, last summer watching that group at, you know, area codes and on the showcase circuit generally was, you could tell that it was, it was a high-end group. And then starting to see next year's crop of high schoolers, uh, which like I got going this weekend, there's a Team USA baseball and MLB like high school All-American game that takes place the Friday leading into the All-Star weekend. And it's not as good. So like next year's just like watching 50 kids take BP and infield, it was just like, Ugh, like this is not this is not as good as last year. Uh, and it is just so variable. Like you go back to like the Mickey Moniac draft, mm. and there's not really among the guys who went like in the top ten of that class. There's just like no one who you're like, oh yeah, that guy in retrospect is the clear best guy. He goes first in most drafts if you know he's going to be that guy. Like there's not anyone like that, uh, and that's just like what the case is some years. But this year was was a much much better group mm-hmm. uh, where we had you know a handful of guys up at the top of the draft who you know, in a normal year would have an argument to go 1-1. There were like three, four, maybe five of those guys this year. Yeah, so those five guys, it seems like there was a consensus about the top five, and they actually became the top five, at least in some order, right? So whether it was Paul Skeens, who went to the Pirates 1-1, his teammate at LSU, Dylan Cruz, went to the Nationals, then Max Clark to the Tigers, then Wyatt Lankford to the Rangers, and then Walker Jenkins to the Twins. 
those were all kind of the top five on mock drafts in some order. So I guess it was a good day for mocks, at least early there. No one tried anything super creative or unanticipated, right? There were no shenanigans, no sort of let's do some cost savings early on and uh, try to use that money later in the draft. The top talents got picked with the top picks, which was, I guess, semi-unusual. But is that just a testament to the fact that those were so clearly the five best talents in the draft? Yeah, it's it's funny because I think a lot of us probably got slayed in that top five, like in the mocks themselves. Like if it's totally yeah. binary, you didn't you had the pick or you didn't. But the fact that the general consensus that especially, you know, Jim Callis and Kylie and like Carlos Colazzo, when you're doing a mock a couple months out, and you know, this is gonna sound more derisive than it actually is, but like at that point, like it is just clickbait, like mm-hmm. so much can change between now and then. But when you know at that stage that the top five or six guys are these names, and it turns out to be right, like that's good. Like that's a good process. You are cultivating correct information. Even if like you didn't have skeins one, that's still a good process. Really the first heavy cut in the draft was at six with Jacob Wilson going to the A's, the shortstop from Grand Canyon, who maybe has the best bat to ball skills in the whole draft, but he's not very physical at all. Like when tier two of players begins which it clearly did at pick six, that is the most logical place to try to cut with a guy because you don't have access to that top tier of players. So, you know, why not try to take savings? Because now you're starting, you know, here we are at the next level of dude. It made, you know, logical sense for the A's to do that there. You can quibble with the player that they did it with, I think, uh, because like Jacob Wilson, as much as I like him, like is so frail that he just like doesn't look like a big leaguer. But I, I had him, you know, like close to 10 overall. So it's, it's perfectly fine in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, like if there was a surprise at the very top where we weren't sure how things were going to land, it's that Max Clark went third to Detroit and not Wyatt Lankford. There was some, you know, working on mock stuff mostly like heavily this week uh, leading into the draft itself, like literally sitting at the, you know, in the media area at the draft with Meg and like going through the names, uh, still working the phones, trying to, you know, get any last minute information that we could. There was weird disagreement about whether Clark, the high school outfielder from Indiana or Langford, the left fielder, maybe center fielder from Florida, uh, who might be the choice at three if he's still on the board. Now, like I ended up mocking Langford one, so it didn't matter who I s- stuck there on the mock. Like it was just going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, Texas was always viewed as, as Langford's floor, like late enough in the process, it was clear that if he was there, that he would be their guy and they ended up getting him. So uh, it was, yeah, it was pretty chalky draft overall in terms of uh, who went where. It wasn't really until some of the stuff on day two got going that there was like, oh, this is, you know, an interesting surprise here or there. Most of the first night was was pretty chalky. And I've written and we've talked about the fact that pitching prospects, there just aren't as many of them anymore, at least when it comes to rankings and top draft selections. So 
Only five of the first 32 players were pitchers. One was a high school pitcher, if we don't count Bryce Eldridge, the two-way player, whom I'm sure we will talk about soon. But the 1-1 was a pitcher. Paul Skeen's the first pitcher to go 1-1 since Casey Mize, what, five years ago at this point, right? So what was it about Skeen's that flew in the face of the headwinds against ranking individual pitchers or selecting individual pitchers highly just because of the injury risk and because of the way that the role of the starting pitcher and the workload of pitchers in general has changed? Still, Skeen's was the one that the Pirates wanted there. Right, yeah, and we'll wait to see what type of bonus he ultimately agrees to and how that sort of looks compared to what Cruz gets at two and, you know, Langford at four. I think those are the three where you want to see at the end of the day how much money each of them gets. Because I do think that that group at the top was clustered enough that even though I have Dylan Cruz like at one in a tier on his own, it's close enough that you could justify trying to cut with one of those three guys and get another good prospect later because of what you're saving in your bonus pool. So with Skeens, you mentioning Casey Mize is exactly the the type of reason why it's risky to take a pitcher, period. You know, they just tend to get hurt what they do, especially when you're throwing, you know, upper 90s fastballs for seven innings at a time. It's not great for your shoulder. It's not great for your for your elbow. And so with Skeens, you know, he is just so he's just, just a, a physical outlier. Casey Mize is not, right? Even like Steven Strasburg is he's not like built like Skeens, where Skeens is like 6'6, 240. But Strasburg and like Cole, like they are outliers. And I think Skeens is in in a tier of his own in terms of like his physicality. That yeah, I think you could say like I feel safer doing this than I would with someone like Casey Mize or you know AJ Puck or the the other types of pitchers who have tended to go very very high in the draft. Jeff Hoffman, right? Like these are all kind of like ah yeah, like I could see it. Chase even like Chase Dollander and Rhett Lauder, like yeah, like I get it. They're good. You know, there's 97 on my gun, great. But Skeens, his his build and just how powerful he is overall, it is sort of in a a space on its own uh, that I think, you know, justifies it. Uh, And I know there are people who were picking up in that area who totally agreed with it, like, you know, thought it would have been criminal to take anybody else but Skeens, even, you know, ahead of these other college hitters who dominated the SEC for a couple of years. So, And like Cruz has been a dude since he was a high school sophomore and performed the whole time, like feels so safe. But but yeah, like I get it from a fastball shape standpoint, Skeens is not, you know, it's not optimal, right? It is, it is in the Sandy Alcantara, like all that velo has got to be there for this to be a dominant pitch. And if going 200-ish innings, which you want from a dude who's built like this. Like You want a guy who has this level of ability and physicality to like be a 200-inning horse. And to ask someone to do that and hold 96-plus for seven innings every time out, like it's a, it's a tall t- task. So uh, we will see how that goes. I would imagine we see Paul Skeens in the big leagues in 2024. Uh, and I think that 
that is not necessarily true of Dylan Cruz and Wyatt Langford and definitely not, not true of the, the high school outfielders who are at the top of the draft. And so if you're Pittsburgh and you feel like your team is starting to like Brian Reynolds is just like in place now. And, you know, here comes Luis Ortiz and Rowanti Contreras and, you know, they're having hiccups in this and that, but like some of the next competitive pirates team you have to feel like is in place. Uh, and Paul Skeens is like plug and play in your rotation next year. You know, there are some, I think, you know, totally justifiable. Even though he had a somewhat heavier workload, right, leading up to the draft, Gerald Schiffman did an analysis of that at Baseball Prospectus, looked at the workloads, the pitch counts, the pitch smart violations of the various top draft prospects. And Skeens was up there just in the workload. We talked about that a little last time when you were on, but it wasn't so worrisome that anyone was going to stay away from him, I guess. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't think so. Um, again, like we're just talking about like a different physical entity context for all this stuff is important. This is a different cat. Uh, but yeah, like there was buzz about a bunch of the guys at, you know, having this or that thing, Rhett Louder who ended up going seventh to Cincinnati, the pitcher from Wake Forest, who had like that epic duel with Paul Skeens in the postseason. You know, there were elbow, there was elbow buzz, you know, on the phone leading up to the draft. And it's like, is this, you know, some weird thing designed to like try to get him to fall? Why is it like we're sitting there in the in the media area before the draft and I'm like pulling up Louder's last couple pitches of that final game on synergy, like his last pitches, uh, his 87th pitch of, you know, a gem that he's throwing and he comes out after only 87 pitches and like we're watching his body language and he, he went seventh. So the Reds feel fine about it. Most people felt fine about it. Most of these guys end up having something at some point anyway, you could be handled with care and still end up having something go wrong. Uh, and so, you know, like it's just so variable, but, but yeah, I don't think for Skeens, it was, was much of a concern for, for anybody. You mentioned louder in your day one draft recap, you mentioned in the Reds blurb that this was kind of as close to a draft for need approach as any team took in day one with louder and then Ty Floyd and Samuel Stafora. Another shortstop seems like the last thing they need, I guess at this point, but he's, he's young, but what did you mean by that? And does that make sense in the case of someone like the Reds, where everything's kind of coming together and all the prospects are arriving right now? Obviously, everyone always says so draft for talent, don't draft for need, especially in baseball, where this is also unpredictable and the timelines can vary so much. But does it ever make sense for a team that's in a position like Cincinnati, which I guess is semi-similar to what you were saying about the Pirates and Skeens? Yeah, I, I kind of think it does. I think that if we look at recent history, like the the team that comes to mind is that Cubs core with Schwarber and Baez and like Addison Russell and Chris Bryant, where they just couldn't draft and develop enough pitching to support that core of position players. And what it meant was they only got one, right? And I think for other teams, there are situations where they don't end up getting any because they they haven't been able to... I mean, just look at the Angels, right? Like, the Angels tried kind of late to, to, to do a very extreme version of this to try to run as much pitching up the ladder as they could. You still see it now, like 
Sam Bachman and Chase Silseth and Victor Medeiros and these guys, like, they're not quote-unquote ready. They weren't, like, really given the, the, the best opportunity to max out at the minor leagues. They were all kind of pushed. And for, for, for each one of these guys, the realistic outcome is reliever in the Angels case, right? But, uh, you know, they just had to try to rush this pitching to the big leagues and they took, you know, Reed Detmers and they took Griffin Canning and, uh, you know, guys who are about as ready as you can be to try to get him there. And in the Reds case, you do have like Ellie is in place. McLean is in place. Spencer Steer is in there and people trying to execute a version of what the Braves have where you, and the Braves have kind of done this too, where they're just like, you know, it's pitcher heavy drafts. Uh, when you have the core of position players in place. And I think it makes a lot of sense because one of the reasons that, you know, we see so few pitchers taken high or ranked high on a draft list, we've talked about this on the pod before, is you need pitching depth. Like you need it in volume, uh, you know, on your 40 man and in your farm system because you're like getting trial after trial with development. Maybe these guys pop in a good way. Uh, and you know, you just need like depth, like pitching depth, they get hurt. Uh, and so, yeah, like it makes a ton of sense. I think if, if the Reds feel like their division is hanging in the balance, which it, it certainly feels like it, it is and, and will be for the foreseeable future. And they think like they have a chance to grab the brass ring, but it means like having more than Ben Lively and Luke Weaver and, and these guys like in your rotation because Nick Lodolo's hurt and because Hunter Green is hurt and like that's what happens, then it makes a ton of sense. And so like wouldn't be surprised if Rhett Louder's in the big leagues next year either uh, just by virtue of like how polished he is. And pitching is one of those things that you can really evaluate in a vacuum more so than hitting. And I think you can say with a greater degree of confidence that these guys are close to the big leagues than you can the hitters. Uh, and so, yeah, like I think it's... uh them and and I think the Braves too. Like I thought it was a coup for the Braves to get Hurston Waldrop as late as they did. I have you know Waldrop's a top 100 prospect for me. He's got three plus pitches right now, um, and it wouldn't surprise me if he's also in the big leagues at some point soon. It wouldn't surprise me if that guy pitches in the postseason for the Braves if they shut him down for a while and then ramp him back up late in the summer. You know after he's had a break and then deploy him in relief. Like that seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, it isn't all that different from what a lot of teams do with their college pitching prospects. Generally, they, you know, more and more of them shut them down entirely after the draft, but typically you shut down and then you get cranked up again for instructs in the fall, uh, just so that the, you know, the org can get a look at you. And if there are developmental checkpoints, they want you to hit, you have a new breaking ball grip, whatever it is. There you are at Instructs. It's a very controlled developmental environment. It's, you know, very safe for your health, this and that. You can roll an inning if you don't get three outs, whatever, nobody cares. It's, you know, glorified scrimmage. It's purely for developmental purposes, but you can you can do that, a version of that, you know, with a Garrett Crochet or, you know, the like in the postseason with a dude throwing 97 with a plus-plus splitter and a good curveball. You know, that guy can air it out an inning at a time and be your third, fourth, or fifth best reliever in the whole org. Like, absolutely, Hurston Waldrop can do a thing like that. So, yeah, I do think, um, uh, I think that the fact that they're 
are fewer minor league roster spots and affiliates means teams are less likely to do the whole, like, let's take this two-sport athlete and, like, give them six years to try to figure it out. Like, it's not really a luxury teams have quite as much anymore to send a guy to the Pioneer League after he was in, you know, on the complex the year before and, like, slowly barbecue his development. It's not really a thing anymore. Uh, and so, like, drafting for need you know, is a little closer to something you might actually do because you have fewer other options. This is straying a little bit from the draft, but what do you think of a decision like the Marlins doing what they're doing with Yuri Perez, which is sending him down to the minors where he will maybe pitch sporadically or maybe just sort of throw and at some point presumably come back to the major leagues if the playoffs are happening, if the Marlins are still in the running, even though they've been without him for a while. Meg and I talked about it a bit just because he had been over his uh, innings high for a season already, and it was clear that there was going to be some decision that would have to be made there. And I think we were kind of more on the side of just, like, let him pitch, but in moderation, you know, make sure he gets plenty of rest between starts and don't have him go too deep into games, but to shut him down to some extent, and then ramp him back up again. Maybe that would be bad. I mean, he's a major leaguer, but he's also a year younger than Paul Skeens, right? So he's just, I don't know whether that track record of what teams do with college pitchers is instructive at all when it comes to what the Marlins should do with Perez, like putting salary issues aside and whether that is a motivation here just in terms of keeping him healthy or or maximizing how many innings you can get out of him i don't think anyone knows exactly right like i don't know it's been a while since the strasburg shut down and i don't know that the thinking on this or the knowledge about this has advanced all that much since then so maybe everyone is just guessing about what the best way to handle this is Right. I think that there is a fair amount of guesswork that's just going into it. Unless he is showing or communicating to the org signs of fatigue. Yeah. That and, and it's possible that if that's happening, that we wouldn't know about it and we shouldn't know about it. And if, mm -hmm. if the Marlins are acting rationally, like I would expect them to act rationally, then the service time stuff like has gotta be a thing that they're talking about and caring about as, you know as suboptimal it is as it is from like a worker's rights standpoint, <laughs> like they're gonna think about it that way. And also to act rationally as the Marlins front office is to try to make the postseason mm -hmm. so that you can keep being the Marlins front office. Yeah. And so it's so difficult. Like if you would have asked me this question at the beginning of the year and said, Hey, I can guarantee you that Yuri is going to be ready to be like a capital D dude this mm -hmm. year and knowing that he's only thrown, you know, 75 or so innings each of the last couple of years because he's had arm fatigue, like just generalized, not really an injury, just like signs of fatigue that they had to shut him down for. I would say that his season should start on a delay hmm. that, that, you know, you should line it up so that he's only getting going at a point where he's he's up one time, goes through the end of the season, and then is done. Uh, so that, you know, you're not having to try to do this during the year. I think, you know, all the other icing on the cake scenarios, like he wins rookie of the year and we get a, a draft pick. Like it felt good. If you're you're the Mariners and you have an extra first round pick, essentially, because Julio won rookie of the year, you know, you want to give someone 
a chance to do that. Now, Corbin Carroll's, you know, if, if he just stays healthy, it doesn't really matter. Like the Diamondbacks are going to get that pick. Mm-hmm. But it is more likely that the guy who has a hot September is the one who like the narrative builds and oh, like he wins rookie of the year, you know, and you get, so there are all kinds of other reasons to consider maybe having done it that way. Mm-hmm. But if you do it that way, you're not like sitting in wildcard position right now, if you're the Marlins, like Yuri yeah. coming up and being good is part of why they're competing. Mm-hmm. So I do not envy them for having to like navigate this situation, but I would say I would be inclined to like, let's just keep going. This is a, again, like this is clearly a different dude. We don't have to take like a generic line with his development. Like maybe this guy's just the freak we think he is. And like, let's let him go out there and continue to to be that way. And if there are any indications of fatigue, then we shut him down for, you know, a spell. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's, it's not an easy, it's not an easy puzzle to solve. I don't think. So back to the draft, what does it mean for a program for LSU to have the number one and number two picks be from that school? It's the first time that's ever happened in the draft. And then also they had three other picks in the top 100, Ty Floyd, Grant Taylor, Trey Morgan, plus they won the national championship. So that helps too. Just everything coming up LSU, like from a recruiting standpoint, is that just like they're made in the shade now because <laughs> everyone will want to go there, basically. Yeah, I think um, LSU was already so attractive for young athletes because, especially baseball players, because that environment is electric. Like Alex Box Stadium is as raucous a place to play college baseball as there is. And so, you know, it was already a big deal to go there. And then once the the transfer portal rules changed such that college players were no longer punished for like seeking out a better environment to play or go to school or whatever their motivation was like the idea that Kyler Murray transferred from A&M to Oklahoma and had to sit out a year is like absurd. So you have that, like the transfer portal stuff changing and the NIL stuff all like LSU is leaning into that hard. And other schools, including other SEC schools, like Vanderbilt's not budging on that. Like Tim Corbin just isn't into it. Whereas LSU and their boosters and their athletic department is like, yeah, like, sure, we can get Tommy White to transfer from North Carolina State and he'll get this amount of money and he's got, you know, a deal with Raisin Canes to, you know, as, as a sponsor and like... That, that's really, really changing the shape of college sports. And I think baseball, especially where like scholarships are few and far between in baseball relative to other sports, like the dynamics of, the, of NIL and the way they interact with baseball, I think it's so, so important. Uh, and then when you do what, you know, LSU just did in terms of like, here's Paul Skeens, he was at Air Force. And like, think about how powerful that is. Think about like all the discussions we've had about Noah Song and how powerful the, the military commitment stuff is and what that does to complicate, you know, your your you know pro sports career. And this LSU's poll was powerful enough to like just rip Paul Skeens right out of the Air Force. <laughs> so the, I will say, if we look at Kentucky basketball and John Calipari and i guess this is pre NIL and like it's a new game it's a new ball game for everyone involved and like that program has pretty quickly fallen off the same way i think that there's a chance Vanderbilt 
you know, just sort of falls away the same way that like Lou Holtz, Notre Dame football was like the pinnacle. And then, you know, Bob Davey comes in and like things kind of get worse. Like these aren't necessarily, you know, they're not going to have like a, a grip on the top of the sport forever. Uh, like I've just been a sports fan long enough to know that these things change, uh, even though you think like, yeah, like USC football, Reggie Bush and Matt Liner, like this is going to be this way forever. Here comes Matt Barkley. Oh, he sucks. And, <laughs> you know, Pete Carroll goes to Seattle. Like these things happen. But right now, man, like, I don't know that all those kids are rock stars that go there. And I think people want a piece of that. And I think like the gymnast who's there making a ton of money, you know, on Instagram and, and with, you know, endorsement deals and stuff like I think that that school in particular is like a weird beacon for college athletes now. And it wouldn't surprise me if what we see happen there is like dynastic as far as the baseball is concerned for the next handful of years. And they've just pulled so many people from all over the place. Like when they hired Jay Johnson away from Arizona, I mean, I was pissed because like, uh, I want a program this good to be an hour and a half from my front door. <laughs> and I couldn't believe, you know, that to have the success you do at a power five program like U of A, which is like a good, U of A is a, a good baseball school, but to, you know, the pull of the SEC, man, like it's, it's a really, really big deal across college sports in general. And it's especially strong, I think in baseball where they are so clearly a cut above uh, the rest. So, you know, I'm always going to ask about the two-way guys. Last time you were on, we talked about Jack Caglione, who will be eligible for next year's draft. But a couple first-round two-way guys this year, Blake Mitchell, who went to the Royals with the eighth overall pick. He's a catcher-slash-pitcher high school guy, as is Bryce Eldridge, who went to the Giants, 16th overall also a two-way guy. And then I guess there were some college guys lower in the draft, right? Nolan McLean, who went to the Mets from Oklahoma State. Trevor Werner, way later, seventh round Texas A&M guy, went to the Royals. Tucker Musgrove. Is there anyone I should get my hopes up? Forget about the Otani comps, but just is there anyone who has a legitimate chance to stick and pursue a two-way career? Probably not. <laughs> Bryce Eldridge just isn't a good enough pitching prospect to do it, I don't think. I think, you know, he wants to do both. The Giants have Reggie Crawford. Last year, they drafted out of UConn, who was coming off a of TJ. And they have him doing it right now at, you know, San Jose, doing both, like hitting once a week. Realistically, you know, I think Nolan McLean is the one who has maybe the best chance to do some amount of it, but probably only in like the Micah Owings mm -hmm. version of it, where it's like he's a reliever and occasionally pinch hits, you know, like he's not going to play right field or third base in all probability. There are just too many guys who are skilled in a way that Nolan McLean is skilled that only do end up doing one like JD Davis and, you know, Matt Chapman and uh, Casey Schmidt, you know, all these dudes were good college relievers and were just good enough as hitters to just be that. Um, mm -hmm. So there have been, you know, attempts Tanner Dotson with the Rays and the Dodgers Tanner Dotson was plus runner center fielder and a reliever 
And, you know, just ultimately, like, you just sort of end up kind of doing one, which <laughs> is when you start really thinking about how impossible it is, it just makes it all the more incredible to think about, like, what Otani's doing. <laughs> Even Jared Walsh, like, Jared Walsh did both mm-hmm. for a while. Yep. And I thought there was a chance that he would get to, because what he did as a pitcher was so specific. It's just like, yeah, I left you with a breaking ball. Come in, get two lefties out, see ya, like, and be Jared Walsh otherwise as a hitter. Like, that seemed totally plausible. But yeah, like, there's seems like there's only one one guy who can yeah. actually do it. The fact that the Angels <laughs> had Otani, they're the team with Otani that has reaped the rewards of that. And they had other potential two-way guys like Walsh and like Michael Lorenzen, right? And William just, Holmes, and, they tried to, you know, do it with for a little while yeah, too. Yeah, Caleb Cowart, right? <laughs> so yep. they had all these guys and then you'd think if any team was going to do it, it would be the one that has seen it work so well. And uh, even with them, all of those guys, you know, it's just Otani. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, everyone keeps saying like kids will come up and they will want to emulate Otani. And I'm sure that's true to some extent, like just demonstrating that it is humanly possible to do it and opening that door. There are going to be some, you know, everyone talks about the Dave Winfields and the John Olroods, right? And these people who potentially could have done it, but they were shunted in one direction or another. And maybe now teams will be a little less urgent about doing that. But even so, it's just, it's really, really difficult to do so. But I'm going to keep asking every year and hope that one of these years you tell me that I should buy into one of these two-way prospects. I think at some point it'll happen, right? I do think that there are going to be knock-on effects of Otani's yeah, stardom. Yeah, 15 or 20 years for that to show yes. up, right? So, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. It's just like, you know, the Allen Iverson stuff has has, you know, given us... Kyrie Irving and, you know, Steph Curry has given us, you know, and for sure we haven't even seen, the, you know, the impact of of that just yet. But yeah, like I think anyone who transcends uh, at some point, they are, you know, they're going to be the velvet underground and influence, you know, the pixies and whatever. Like mm-hmm. it's, you know, that I'm sure that stuff will happen at some point. We'll get some, somebody else will come through who can actually do it. But Major League Baseball is just so hard. Right. Yeah, I guess wouldn't have to take 15 or 20 years like some kid who's a big Otani fan now right and has the talent maybe it's only 10 years I'm always struck like Dylan Cruz you know is talking about like he grew up watching Bryce Harper you know and it's like oh man I'm old I guess (laughs) but but yeah like Growing up, I mean, kids who get drafted are still kind of kids and growing up watching someone to them means like five years ago or whatever, right? So like, you know. For sure. I have like a Cole Hamels jersey Mm -hmm. signed at the Lehigh Valley Mall when I'm like 16. Yeah. And Cole is like five years older than me. Right. (laughs) So it might only be five to 10 years until whatever wave of kids who had some Otani type talent, if there's anyone like that and is influenced by watching Otani and thinking, wow, I can do this. Right. Just knowing that Ellie De La Cruz throws as hard as he does, Mm -hmm. had he been three years younger and like totally the same athlete, Mm. Are we more open to, and is he more pursuant of something like that? Where, like, 
a guy built like Ellie, you typically see him on the mound, right? Mm -hmm. Like 6'4 with shoulders like that. Like you wouldn't be surprised to see a guy like that on the mound. Is you know, AJ Burnett is built like that. And right, you know, so and an athlete as ridiculous as as Ellie de la Cruz, for sure you'd want to see what it looks like, right? Mm -hmm. If you were if I, I told you this guy's <laughs> striking out 33% of the time in the minors, you'd be like, Well, I kind of want to see what it looks like on the mound then, just in case. Yeah. <laughs> just when I thought Ellie de la Cruz could not be more compelling and fascinating. Now you're telling me maybe he could have been a pitcher. <laughs> Isn't it? Well. And so I'm curious, how do you feel about this, right? Like <laughs> if you see, if you see a 17, 18, 19 year old on the complex, who's built like Ellie is and who has the bat speed that that guy does, even if I told you, Hey, for the next couple of years, this guy's going to strike out 33% of the time throughout the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a, that's that's a red flag. Like, mm -hmm. even Joey Gallo didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Even Lewis Brinson and Monte Harrison and some of these other guys who are, like, absolutely tooled out, you know, and ended up striking out too much to, like, have a meaningful big league career, they didn't do that. Mm -hmm. But Ellie is, you know, what he is physically – and so if I told you, you know, even given this and that caveat, this is what the the athlete looks like, are you going to stuff that guy on your, where do you think that guy belongs on a prospect list? Where do you feel like <laughs> even just the potential that he has to be what Ellie looks like he might be, what yeah. O'Neill Cruz looks like he could be, you know, sometimes they Joe Adele, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what do you do? Like, where do you feel comfortable if I told you, hey, this guy's going to be Spencer Steer, I guarantee it, he's going to hit this way. Mm -hmm. Do you take the ceiling risk guy over the generic 50? Are you going to do it? Or do you want to give me the guy who I know is going to be fine? Right. Yeah. I, I kind of respect the higher probability, less sexy pick generally, right? But, but then if you miss out on the unicorn, then that sucks too, because uh, Ellie's amazing and kind of transformative for a franchise. So you don't want to rule out that type of guy, but you will more often than not strike out just like that type of player strikes out. <laughs> so Right. And that's, yeah. you know, every year, the new group of players comes through the complex, right? Where it's just like, oh, there's Ellie. Oh, here's, you know, Sebastian Walcott. Here's Yancel Luis. There's your Donnie De Los Santos. And, you know, to at this stage, having seen this and that guy during extended spring training and then on the complex a little bit, are you going to do it? <laughs> right? Like, where do you stick Junior Caminero, when you see him in extended and you're just like, wow, that's a 17-year-old with seven bat speed. But boy, he does like to swing. And, you know, boy, you know, his body's going to fill out in a certain way that's going to push him to third base. And, but boy, he does have seven bat speed, doesn't he? You know, it's just like so you got to at some point decide like, ah, Sebastian Walcott, 17 and a half. He's got elite hand speed and he's 6'3", 180. Like, yeah, like, I'm in. There aren't real repercussions for me if I end up being wrong. You know, I just feel like there's also a justification for doing it. Like if I'm the Angels and I'm trading Otani at the deadline and I'm looking at the Rangers farm system and I see Sebastian Walcott might be a foundational, like a superstar, do I want him or mm -hmm. do I want 
Ezekiel Duran. Ah, that's pretty tough. Yeah. <laughs> Scouting's hard. So before we finish the draft talk, I guess we always ask you whether there's any team that stood out, you know, in a good way or a, a bad way. Just sort of a head-scratching draft or a, wow, I really like what they did draft with all of the caveats that apply to how difficult it is to make snap judgments on these things. So were there any teams on either end of the spectrum that you thought, wow, well done, or I don't know exactly what they were doing. Yeah, I'm going to be, there are a couple key players that I, uh, we can touch on them in a, in a moment, but uh, I thought Milwaukee's draft, it looks very interesting. They ended up taking in the third round, Eric Batanti, high school, it's useless as a shortstop. He's maybe a DH, you know, he's like, Giant 6'4", 230, huge power right now, power projection. He's one of the younger high school hitters in the class. The general sense among the industry is that that guy wants $2.5 million to sign uh, and end up you know, not going to UCLA, right? I'm pretty sure it's UCLA. And then in the sixth round, they took another high school kid who I had ranked towards the back of the first round, Cooper Pratt, a high school shortstop, probably, you know, again, more third base from Mississippi, just like well-rounded contact power, body projection is there. How is the math going to work out for this draft class? Can they get both of those guys done? Did they take Batanti in the third round and then were scared by what his number might be and then divert to like a safety valve in the sixth round in Pratt? Or is there room to get both of these high upside high school guys done within their bonus pool. Is Brock Wilkin their first round pick out of Wake Forest who has some of the you know biggest exit velos in the draft? It felt like a reach there for me purely on talent. Uh, I had him, you know, probably like towards the back of the first into, into the comp round just because it's like a stiff, you know, big body third baseman's got a mash. The power is definitely there. Is the contact piece of it going to be there? Like, I like him as a player, but at 18, it's a little rich. Is he under slot? It's a $4 million slot. If you can get him done for comp round, back of the first round money, which is like closer to two and a half mil, you're saving 1.5 in your pool. Now we're talking about like getting Batanti done. You see who the other guys they took on day two of the draft were. And after Pratt, it's senior, fifth year senior, grad transfer, grad transfer. Those guys are going to be 10K, 20K, and your slot between round seven through 10 is 250K, 200K, 175, 150. So you're saving, you know, about, I guess it's yada, 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 like close to a million bucks by taking seniors the back half of day two. Do they have enough bonus pool space to get some of those high school players done? That was the draft, you know, at the end of day two, where I was like, huh, this is really interesting what they're doing. Uh, so that's a good one. The A's, you know, after the, the first night was over, I kind of looked at the A's draft and was just like, man, not into this really. I obviously understand we talked about it at the top. The first tier of player went one, two, three, four, five. The A's pick six. At that point, it makes total sense to, to cut with your guy, to have an underslot deal with, with your type of dude and Jacob Wilson, who, you know, had six strikeouts this year, is exactly the A's type of guy. Uh, and then, you know, they took Miles Naylor, the third of the Naylor brothers, 
uh, with their comp round pick. I am not a you know nailer guy. I just don't think he's going to hit. But there are tools there. There's you know plus bat speed, plus plus arm. He's a nailer. The nailers have panned out. Like it's okay to look at it that way and say like this you know family can handle pro baseball and they are you know clearly have this like ability. Uh, Ryan Lasco, the Rutgers outfielder who they took in the second round, I was probably a little bit light on pre-draft revisiting that in the moment. Like, I feel like that's a perfectly fine picket at 41. And then to see what they did on day two, where they got two more high upside high school arms in rounds three and four, Steven Echeverria, I had ranked very high. It's that vertical fastball curveball combo that I like, you know, with physical projection. He's only 6'1", 180, but has room on the frame for more mass. And I feel pretty good about, you know, what his long-term Velo projection will be enough that I think he'll sustain the 92 to 95 that he's working with now, uh, if not, you know, have more Velo at uh, at peak. And then Cole Miller, California high school guy right behind it. Like, I like both of those guys. And so I felt better about their class uh, after day two. The, the Pirates group, obviously getting Paul Skeens, number one, great job. He's awesome. Mitch Jeb, in the second round, contact, speed, lefty hitting, shortstop, second base. You know, that's my type of player. You know, you hit left-handed or switch hit. You have contact skills. You play up the middle of the diamond. Like, I thought that was a good second pick for them. There are a couple instances where, you know, the Mariners, just by sheer volume of the picks that they had, mm-hmm. you know, f- f- basically four picks in the top 60, you're going to have a good draft. Colt Emerson, their first pick, it's a lot like the Cole Young pick last year, except Cole Young. Now Cole Young's like added 30 pounds of muscle and is now like a power hitting second baseman rather than a contact oriented shortstop, which he was on draft day last year. But Emerson is contact oriented shortstop, left-handed hitting, probably going to stay at short. It's a great profile. Loved it. And then they, you know, they took the high risk upside guys with their next two picks. Ty Pete on the younger end, huge frame, lefty hitting shortstop, huge power hit tool risk. Johnny Farmello, pick 29, plus-plus runner, had the second-fastest 30-yard dash time at the Combine. I have some hit-tool question marks about Farmello. I was I was lower on him than this than this pick, but like I get it at least. Like I could see where they're coming from. And then Aiden Smith, who they got in the fourth round, again, like high school outfielder who on talent probably goes in the third round, late second round, early third perhaps. So I like their draft. I guess like the, the drafts that felt kind of stilted to me. The Dodgers draft, the Dodgers had their pocket picked. The Dodgers, Mm -hmm. I think, were targeting Thomas White, the high school lefty from Massachusetts, uh, and he went the pick before them to Miami. Mm -hmm. And so I think they had to divert. I think we might see them do something interesting here in round 11 uh, within, you know, the next 20 minutes of us, like, talking, because I would guess they still have pool space left. I think that the the guy who they took in the first round, Kendall George, who's like an elite speed high school outfielder, you know, he looks at this stage kind of like Enrique Bradfield did coming out of high school where, you know, he's so small, but can really run. And you just want, you know, typically you like a guy like this, go to college, prove that you have the physicality to do this and that you're going to hit. And then, you know, you're going to get Enrique Bradfield mid first round bonus money three years from now. Uh, I expect that he will be under slot with the Dodgers first pick. And, you know, they definitely in the third round, Brady Smith, 
Tennessee uh, high school pitcher. That's probably an overslot guy, but it just seems like there's something missing here still. I don't know where some of that extra money that they might have saved in the first round is. Just looking at the rest of the class, I'm not like finding where they made up for, you know, trying to use this strategy. Like, all right, we got our pocket pick, let's cut a deal and try to get more guys later. It just seems like they got one guy. Uh, but maybe that will change here in like the next couple of minutes. So that that was definitely a draft that felt like a little bit weird to me. As I'm paging through the White Sox draft, the White Sox, and again, like I get where some of this is coming from, and there's clearly like a strategy at play here, and it's just that the players that they ended up with, I tend to be lower on. In Jacob Gonzalez's case, their first rounder, it is weird for me to be lower on this type of player. This is, you know, three-year, young-for-the-class-ish, SEC-performing shortstop. <laughs> like, why aren't you on that guy, Hagen? Like, that's your guy. But just watching Jacob Gonzalez play, like, he just doesn't check the visual boxes for me in a way that I'm comfortable with. Some of these guys whose swings struggle to handle velocity up and away from them, I am starting to become more sensitive to that early in the process and move off of them sooner. Those are the warning signs for Carter Keboom. Those are the warning signs for J.J. Blade. Those are the warning signs for Keston Hura. Like, if you cannot get on top of those, you know, rise and run fastballs as a left-handed hitter, you're in trouble because guess what almost every big league righty has? <laughs> and that's Jacob Gonzalez for me. He's like, you know, stepping in the bucket, his front side is bailing super early, and I fear that he's going to swing inside a ton of those fastballs. And so, like, I had him slid deep compared to what you typically would for a guy who performed like he did for three years in the SEC. And I am sort of on an island in that. And you know what? Like, at this point in my life and my career doing this, like, that's fine. <laughs> there have been plenty of times where I've wanted to do a thing like that, including with Blade, where I was just like, this just isn't going to work. And I just didn't, like, you know grab my junk and do it. And I regret it, you know, after the fact. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'd rather be wrong and have conviction than feel this sense of regret. And so like with Jacob Gonzalez, like I had him in the thirties or like 40 or something like that. And then somewhere along the line, the White Sox saved money and they took George Wolkow in the seventh round, a high school outfielder, first base DH, like He'll end up somewhere in that area defensively. He's 6'7, 240 right now. He has gigantic power, like immense power. And I just don't think he's going to hit. Like, he's just another one where I just don't think this guy's going to hit at all. I'm off him. It's just the binary no for me, really. I totally see where, you know, the money goes. Look at his frame. Holy cow. Look at his power. I get it. But he's just not for me. I don't think he's going to hit. And the arms that they took between that first pick and the Wolkow pick are also, you know, they're fine. Grant Taylor, who they got in the second round is coming off a of TJ. It's a vertical fastball, you know, but with downhill plane. So it's got, you know, it's sort of sucking some of the effectiveness out of it, but he does have mid nineties ride. He's coming off a of TJ. He might've gone higher if he was healthy all spring. Uh, and you know, is it, you know, he would have been in the LSU rotation. Like it would have been Skeens Floyd and this other guy who's up to 98 sitting three to five with carry and a good breaking ball. 
And it's just, you know, a reliever look mechanically and, you know, to take that guy in the second round, it's just okay for me. So uh, the White Sox was the other one where I was just like, ah, eh, not the best, but I can see what they're going for. And I kind of, and I, and I get it. It's just these players aren't necessarily for, for me. I have two more questions. And by the time you answer them, maybe those final picks that you're waiting to see will have happened. The first is about a tweet that your colleague, Fangraphs writer Kyle Kishimoto, made during the draft. One of the traditions of the draft is that we get to look at these Zoom cam views of the war rooms where the picks are being made. And the Rockies draft room just seemed extremely Rockies-esque. And Kyle just tweeted a screenshot of the Rockies draft room. And he said, it is hilarious to me that all the other draft rooms have dozens of scouts and front office people. And then the Rockies literally have three people on screen, all of whom appear to be above the age of 65. I would not say they all look that old to me, but it's just three dudes. And I wonder whether you think the view that we get this little window into the war rooms, whether that's actually indicative of anything. Like, is this a reason to dunk on the Rockies? Not that we need additional reasons, but is like the composition of the draft room and who's in there and the makeup of those people, does that mean anything in terms of like how the picks are made or just how the organization operates, just like rewarding people with their presence in the room? Like presumably a lot of the decision-making has been done and, and the players have been ordered and everything. And so maybe you don't need a village in there to make your selections, but teams vary, it seems like, in terms of how they set that up. I have some sympathy for the individual people who like want to be in control of the player opinions and you know, like I do. But yeah, there there is a pretty vast array of choices the teams make with who's in the room who is contributing to decision-making processes. And some of the teams that sequester things to a very small number of people are good at this. Like the Braves and the Giants. Like, the Giants don't have a lot of people sitting in there. And the Braves, like, keep things close within a handful of people. And I think also that you can be good at it and it still alienates your scouts. And what scouts look like and like how many of them there are and what their jobs are, like for some orgs has really changed over the last handful of years. I think that your next question has some stuff to do with that. But yeah, like for the Rockies in particular, and like, look, I know people who work for the Rockies who like have eaten dinner at my house, you know what I mean? Like, but they are weird and they're weird. <laughs> they're a weird organization and they are behind in a lot of ways. And I do think that they do some stuff really well, like scout and draft and sign hitters in Latin America and domestically. Uh, but they are behind from a, a pitching development standpoint in, in a big, big way. They are like abnormally secretive about nonsense. Like there are times when their rosters for minor league spring training or for extended or whatever are just like wrong in a way that feels intentional. And like they hide this and that and won't. There was a time, Ben, when like, and this was, you know, the previous Rockies regime and the individual who will remain anonymous, like doesn't work there anymore with whom I had this interaction. But like I was on the Cubs backfield 
for an extended spring game. And I'm looking at Javier Medina, who was a high school pitcher from Tucson, who they drafted. And I'm looking at him and he's got on that like cast that pitchers who just had Tommy John have on their arm. And so I text this guy and I'm like, hey, when did Javier Medina have Tommy John? I help keep the database of Tommy John's. Like when I learn about it, I'll like tell Jean Rogel, hey, this guy had Tommy John on this day so that he can have the thing. And so I'm like looking at the player and I'm texting this guy and I'm like, hey, like when do you have Tommy John? And he's just like, uh, I can't confirm that he did. And I'm just like, I'm looking at him. <laughs> I see his, the thing on his arm, dude. When did he have Tommy John? Like, what's the harm in telling me that he had TJ? Is it embarrassing somehow to the organization that the guy had Tommy John? Teams know about it, presumably, right? Like, it's in the, you're not, like, keeping it secret in the, in eBiz, right? So, what's the harm in telling me so, like, I can do my job and report, hey, this high draft pick from two years ago had TJ, And it was just like, not like, sorry, like I can confirm he's injured, but (laughs) like, so it's just like stuff like that, where why is this a thing that I and scouts have to contend with? Why do you have two number 95s on the field right now with no name on the back of the jersey? Like you're a professional baseball team, please handle this. Uh, And so like, this is, you know, a Rockies problem. It is not exclusive to the Rockies. Like I've been on the Rays backfield and had similar issues where it's like, huh, this extended spring training roster, like sure isn't up to date. And uh, a lot of these guys have the same number. What's going on? But, but yeah, it is like, it is a consistent Rockies issue for like me and others who just like want an accurate roster. The fact that the Rockies are behind is like, it's been part of it for a while. It's like, there are people in the org who are trying to catch them up. It just takes so much time when Cleveland has had tracks at their big league stadium for like a decade. Now you are behind. And so, yeah, you know, I think it's, I'm pro have your scouts in the room because I think everyone feels like they have skin in the game and you have immediate access to information. When I can text an area guy in your org who's going in right in front of you 10 minutes before you might otherwise know. And then they can just say out loud in the room that that's what's going to happen. And now you know that that's pretty valuable thing to have just to have all those conduits of information and like, you know, be the point guard in the room. If you want to run the room, like be Chris Paul and not Allen Iverson, I guess like, you know, that's, I think that's the approach I would take is I want to share the ball, even if I have to be the one who ultimately makes the decision. Like I want to feel like a cohesive unit so that when my area scout is at the field and it next year during next year's draft process, and they have to like go to a junior college game where they know pretty likely there, there's nobody good there, but I still want them to like be present and attentive in case there is. Go look at Christian Encarnacion Strand's numbers, okay? Go look at his numbers. That guy was at a junior college in Arizona for like a while. (laughs) And he didn't get picked. He just went to Oklahoma State for a year. Yeah. Teams, right? Like, don't you want, even if I don't think he's necessarily like a stud, 
he's a flawed player who I think is like a piece you win with, but not because of. I don't think he's like Pete Alonso or anything like that. But like to have that guy be passed over multiple times at a junior college, like the industry gets an F for that, right? And so if you have skin in the game and you feel emotionally connected to our organization and you feel like you're at the field pursuing stuff like that with like real, your, you know, your thoughts and opinions have real impact on our org and what we do. You, in my opinion, are more likely to be present and attentive and like fucking grind for us at the field than if it is just me and, you know, the tennis club buddies who I play golf with, like sitting at a table, the three of us, like, yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me to do it that way. Mm -hmm. All right. Last question. You sort of teased this friend of the show. Lindsay Adler wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago about the use of artificial intelligence in player evaluation, specifically amateur player evaluation. And it was prompted by MLB partnering with this company called Uplift Labs, which I will read from the piece, a biomechanics company that says it can document a prospect's specific movement patterns using just two iPhone cameras. The setup was available for use in evaluating prospects who agree to participate at the MLB Draft Combine in Arizona. Uplift says it uses artificial intelligence to translate the images captured by the phone cameras into metrics that can quantify elements of player movement. It believes the data it generates can detect players' flaws, forecast their potential, and possibly flag their potential for injury. Not the only company that's trying to do something like this, some sort of biomechanical analysis via phones, via apps, right? right? And High-speed video, yeah, for sure. Everything's labeled artificial intelligence now. I mean, I guess, you know, you would have called it machine learning or just some algorithmic way of evaluating computer vision, whatever, right? So Visual machine learning. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. So, but this is a partnership with the league, which sounds like it's partly a cost-cutting measure like every team is doing its own analysis of biomechanics. And so if they could just have one vendor that every team pays for, the cheap teams will be like, hell yeah, <laughs> right? And other teams that maybe are doing their own thing won't be so psyched about that. That's kind of in line with other reporting about MLB maybe wanting to limit spending or standardized spending or front office size, et cetera. And so this worked like the pre-draft physicals where you could opt in or not. And if you're already a top prospect and you're going to go high in the drafts, well, what do you stand to gain from submitting to something like this? If you're someone who's not in line to be a top pick, maybe you do. And maybe there's something that helps you pop and, and shows you off. But I wonder just how big a deal you think this is or is going to be. Do you think that... AI, whatever we're calling this, is going to be a supplement to scouting? Is it going to be something that replaces scouting? Are we a long way away from this actually adding useful information? No, I think that this type of thing has been going on within certain organizations for quite a while now. Even going back to some of the Astros sign-stealing stuff, what I suspect they were using like to parse some signals in real time was visual machine learning, especially at that time. I think if I remember correctly, and I don't know which story specifically it might be in, but there was one of the stories. Remember like the guy was like pointing uh, his phone at the Red Sox dugout or something like that. One of the stories that reported on that linked to and like cited the 
the type of phone it was. And it was one of the, it was like a Huawei phone. And the model of phone that it was specifically was like a phone that has visual machine learning capabilities on board the device already. And like, you you know, the demonstration that Huawei did of the phone's capabilities were like, you set the camera up and it was like, people they were putting different types of fruit in front of the phone camera and it would tell you what type of fruit it was. It would just like, you'd take the apple out of frame and put the banana in and it would say banana. <laughs> like it was just, you know, identifying what it was, right? <laughs> so now we just um, need it to say future all-star instead of <laughs> org player, right? Right. So what it's doing is like, imagine motion capturing like Andy Serkis's face for the Planet of the Apes movies or, you know, putting the mocap little balls all over Paul Pierce's body and having him, you know, dribble and shoot for, you know, NBA 2K or whatever, right? Like it's a version of that, except it doesn't need the physical contact points on the body for like the, you know, the computer software to read. You can just use the video and the, you know, the program can identify what's going on in terms of like the angles of the bot, the body is creating with itself. So, um, you know, I've talked about this, you and I've maybe talked about this, uh, and I've, you know, certainly mentioned it to like a bunch of other people, but I don't know if I've ever like said it out loud on a podcast and I sure as hell haven't written about it. I was in the Giants press box for a spring training game, this is probably two years ago. And I'm a back of the class guy. I want to sit in the back of the class. Like I was just always like, I get open seating. I'll sit in the last row, please. And so in the press box, I have often a similar approach where I just like, you know, if I have to pick my nose or whatever, I get to be in the back of class and no one sees me. And I'm just like hanging out back there. Right. So the giants have made this mistake of changing a lot of the space at Scottsdale stadium into suites to make money. And so the press box is smaller. And so a bunch of people are crammed in there. And during this one spring training game, some of their analysts were in there. And because I'm a back of the class boy, they were sitting in front of me. And some of them had like, they had their laptop and like a second monitor attached to the laptop and they're like working. And because the sight lines in Scottsdale Stadium's press box are so horrible now that they replaced what used to be two thirds of the press box with like suites. And I'm up above in like theater seating on like the type of thing that I would be if I was like in a high school band about to play a concert, sitting at like a picnic table, I can see over their shoulders at what it is they're doing. And I look at, you know, Alex Wood is on the mound and in real time as he's pitching a kinematic graph of like his hip and shoulder separation throughout his delivery is like populating on these guys' screens. And, you know, I'm a nosy SOB. And so, and I'm also, you know, coy and sly and like deceptive and like generally a horrible person. (laughs) And so I'm like, you know, playing dumb with these, these data analysts and they have to know I'm a media member. I'm in the press box. So I'm just like, hey, like, what are you doing? Are you doing data things? <laughs> you tell me. And they're just, you know, they start sweating. And <laughs> so uh, uh, we're doing, you know, yeah, we're working with data. It's like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, really? 
what is it? You know? <laughs> and you know, I'm just trying to, and I've got my cameras on me. And so like, you know, I feel free to zoom on what it is you're doing. You're in the press box. So like <laughs> fair game. Right. So <laughs> anyway, I've got some stuff that I can maybe show you, but, um, but yeah, like this has been going on for a while where you can map the, what I would say is, I guess the way to, to put it is players capacity for movement mm-hmm. and, uh, you can do it, you know, you're, you're measuring angles of the body and, uh, you know, uh, the degree to which they can move their body relative to other parts of their body and the ground or, you know, whatever it is. And I do think it's very interesting. Like the par- paragraph you read that I think is important is the one where it's like, you know, we want this centralized as much as we can because the technological space, no matter what it is, there's been an arms race, right? We've always seen things trend this way where the Houston Astros put in a TrackMan unit at Vanderbilt. They paid for it to be put in so that they could have exclusive access to the data coming from that TrackMan unit. And this was in like the early days of that being a thing. And then at some point, Cleveland's owner or Pittsburgh's owner or Kansas City's owner wines that not only would we have to write a check to Florida or ASU or UCLA to do this, but all the schools who are relevant for this type of thing have already been occupied. Like the Astros did put one at Vandy and like now they have it and no one else does. And so, you know, we are perpetually behind and also don't want to pay to try to catch up. And so then they, you know, okay, well, let's, everyone shares, it all goes into a bucket and we pay, you know, the cost is, is deferred to all 30 teams and everyone. Now what you do with the data is how you separate yourself. Right. And so things just tend to trend this way and things like this have, have happened. This is the dynamic that occurs. This is the trend that, that happens. And so I have no doubt, of course, major league baseball, you know, when we're talking about trying to, uh, understand the pitchers at Wake Forest, it is very easy. They have all that stuff already there. And if you want to interface with them to get some of that stuff, like you can. But the junior college guy in Oklahoma is much more difficult. Like you, you know, you have to have a scout with an Edgertronic camera or with, you know, the Sony RX 10 four that I have and that Kylie has, and that like all the Yankees cross checkers have and that the Cubs pro scouts scouting the complex have, it's like, you know, a $2,000 camera that shoots at a thousand frames per second. And if you get good open side footage with that camera, like you are going to learn so much about that individual's biomechanics. Uh, and so I think it's a double-edged sword because you have some of these teams, colleges mostly, who are really good at developing pitchers. And some of it is because they're utilizing these techniques to understand and then develop them. Max Wiener, who had been working for the Mariners and is a big reason why a lot of the Mariners pitchers are good, just left the Mariners to work at Texas A&M, right? That he's going to implement that stuff in that space. It's double-edged because you might not have as much meat on the bone developmentally if you're coming out of a program like that where you've already been developed. So the flaws that I am identifying in your mechanics 
might actually be a good thing. You might end up being better from me having identified the flaws. Now, there might be some things that are like scary for other reasons, like, hey, bodies that move this way tend to get hurt, right? Like you start to understand those types of things over time. And then that can be detrimental to the player. But the thing that's weird about this, and like I've talked about this with Craig Edwards, because it is a thing that the players union cares about. If I were going to do this, you know, like if, if I like with Jar Jar Binks or whatever, like I got to mocap you and put the little, you know, the little dots on your body and Andy Circus, you know, we got to put the little dots on your face. You have to consent to that. But if I just need an iPhone angle or two, you don't. I can just have my phone at the field and you're not consenting for, you know, this very personal type of data to be spread out among all 30 teams. I would imagine like Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau sends people to the field to take video and get velocities and and stuff. You know, like my guy is Leon DeWinter. Leon DeWinter works for the Scouting Bureau I see him all up and down the West Coast all spring with like, he's got a tripod set up where like the radar gun and the camera are like stacked one on top of one another. Like he's running around with so much gear for the Bureau, busting his ass, try to collect as much of this stuff in a centralized way as as is possible. So I do think Major League Baseball, if they had their druthers, would like scouting and the expenses that come from having a robust scouting staff to like go away as much as it possibly can at the expense of like what I think is obviously there are issues sometimes with it. Like it's so male and it's hyper white and there are all kinds of like demographic issues that are pervasive through scouting and front offices in general because of social dynamics and stuff like that. Uh, Pero the, I love shooting the shit with scouts and like that culture is important to it's baseball in a way that I don't want to lose. And also like if, you know, I'd like a job with the team if, you know, at some point, if, if, you know, it's the right fit and I'm tired of writing 300,000 words every eight months, but like, uh, I don't want it to go away. I love scout scoutiness, but I do think that major league baseball would rather, centralize as much of it as they can, sequester decision-making to a few individuals within each org so that it's as as lean an operation as possible, allocate more dollars to player development and like understanding stuff like this. But but I think those folks who are pursuing that should know that, hey, like the robots are coming for you too, it seems, right? Like look at, if I can identify mechanical flaws in an individual uh, via visual machine learning, then... I'm I'm gonna. <laughs> mm-hmm. So but yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting and I'm interested in it. Obviously, like I have a high-speed camera, but you know, I don't have like I don't send it to the Kinetrax people and be like, all right, let me know, guys. Like, because mm-hmm. you know, ultimately I'm not developing any of them. I can see the Braves developing them. I can, you know, s- sort of back into with pattern recognition, hey, Dylan Dodd's delivery was like this. And now it's like that. And like, okay, they took Drew Hackenberg, whose delivery looks like this and his fastball shape looks like that. And now a year from now, because I have data and video, I can look at what the Braves have done to it and say, ah, like 
they did this thing where his stride direction has changed and, you know, there it is. It's different now. Look at the way his fastball is moving. But, you know, to be able to, I think like weaponizing your scouts with some of this knowledge, hey, look for guys who look like this because they often can be changed to look like that is very useful. And even just understanding some of these concepts and not having the intellectual horsepower to like build my own, you know, chat GPT type thing where it's just like, here you go, buddy, eat up this video I shot and tell me like if Kamar Rocker is going to get hurt again. But yeah, for sure, teams are are super duper doing that and have been for a very long time. And I think that's part of, well, a very long time in like a baseball sense. And I think that's part of why you're seeing it. Major League Baseball try to centralize it because it's like, Teams like the, well, the Pirates are into it because I've seen people with cameras at the field, you know, in Pirates gear for sure. But just teams like that that are just like, we don't want to open our checkbook up to, to like have to compete with what the Dodgers and the Yankees are doing in this space, please. So can we just agree to all share and then everyone rolls their eyes at them and ultimately they share. <laughs> right. Well, eventually a team will have to hire you and give you a good job just so you'll stop spying and social engineering in the press box. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> just It's so fun, right? <laughs> because I would not get to do that if I were just if I'm just a pro scout, I don't get to be up there. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's hilarious that they felt comfortable doing it up there like yeah. they were sitting next right next to a beat writer mm-hmm. in the press box doing this stuff. And I was just like, why, you know, <laughs> why are you guys doing it? And that, that beat writer was not necessarily paying attention to what it was that they were doing, but you know, I was, why are you guys doing this in here? <laughs> I, it's sort of disrespectful. I, I felt kind of disrespected by it. That They were just like, yeah, we whatever. Like no one's, no one in here is <laughs> is gonna yeah you know watch what we go doing. They were but, asking uh, asking to be surveilled by you. <laughs> yeah. Right. I just love that. I yeah for sure. I do have like a folder of stuff that I like shouldn't have just from like being voyeuristic <laughs> at the at the ballpark. Just sort of like not having the impulse to do other stuff while I'm sitting in my seat opens up the world to me in a way that. Like I'm happy to uh, enjoy, but um, but yeah, like it's a, if it's if an expansion to, if we expand if Major League Baseball expands and like the Portland Roses or something like that want some weird guy with an oddly specific grasp on the entire minor leagues, like the most that one person maybe can like have, then I'm happy to go do that. That's the thing, like being a, doing an expansion draft is like, I'd have a hard time saying no to that. Mm-hmm. That's the one where like Meg's, Meg will be sweating if <laughs> if they expand because that is one of those things where I'll go out of my way to be like, hey, find my replacement because I want to go do this thing. Yeah, and then some other people could catch up with your effectively wild guest appearance tally potentially too. Right, totally fine. <laughs> All right. Well, unless uh, there's anything else you want to report from the 11th or 12th round of the draft that was taking place as we were just talking there, I think we can wrap okay. up. But but we saw... Let me we, just take... I'm taking a look right now to see... Okay. <laughs> if anything changes your evaluation from earlier in this episode, we, we talked for a few draft rounds i think <laughs> so uh, the white Sox took uh riku nishida from oregon they have him listed as a second baseman uh he's a japanese player who played college ball in the u.s and he's so much fun he's not a prospect but he's he's so much fun he int- intentionally does like the baltimore chop like uh-huh. 
it's a thing he does. He runs like three, eight from home to first because he's got a super jailbreaky swing. And he like intentionally tries to hit high choppers that he tries to beat out. There are a couple high school kids who went here in round 11. We cared about the Dodgers, right? Yeah, they just took like a guy from Samford. So not maybe the Dodgers draft is just sort of a shrug. It seems like that might be the case. It's it's a lot of college guys. The Brewers took another high school guy. That's so weird. Like I have to get on the phone and, and maybe try to figure out how many of these Brewers high schoolers are actually going to sign. And the Rangers took a high school kid too, Maxton Martin, who I don't know anything about and we'll have to learn about because for sure, if you're taking a high school kid in round 11, you're probably going to sign him. You just use this time between rounds 10 and 11, the fact that like it's overnight, you have time to do the math, figure out how much money you have left, and then work the phone to see who might be signable for the amount of money that you have left, and then go get your guy in round 11. And anything that may have happened in the 11th round is a thing that I probably have to run down. Brett Banks from UNC Wilmington, the Mets got in the 11th round. That's interesting. Mid-90s, mid-upper-90s reliever who probably moves fast. The Mets draft, I didn't super duper love. They put all their their eggs into the co- the Colin Houck basket, uh, and then clearly cut underslot deals after him. I like Colin Houck as a player, but the Mets' tendency to do this hasn't really worked out. Like you know Matthew Allen and stuff like that, where they're kind of putting all their eggs in one basket. You know, I'm a diversify risk guy in the draft, um, so that, you know it feels risky. But here's a dude in the 11th round who's probably over slot Brett Banks from UNC Wilmington. That's it. I know that's that'll probably be it for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. I will let you stop talking to me and go start talking to some scouts before they all get replaced by iPhone apps. Oh, boy. <laughs> Thank you. As Thanks, always, ben. we Talk will soon, pal. link to all your coverage of the draft, which is excellent as usual. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Well, as the saying goes, no cheering in the press box doesn't say anything about peeking in the press box. So I guess Eric was well within his rights. One more thing I meant to ask Eric was how he explained the record level of offense in college baseball this season. There were 1.13 home runs per game hit, which was an all-time NCAA record. Some people think it's the ball. Some people think it's better bats. Some people think it's illegal bats. Eric said he wondered if the transfer portal played a role. The guy who would have been UCLA's Saturday starter was just LSU's long reliever. That dynamic was common across the sport, and I wonder if more innings were thrown by below-replacement types than usual. He said it did make it harder to contextualize stats when second-rounders were slugging 700. You may remember, by the way, that the Future Blast for episode 2029 noted that Paul Skeens was drafted by the Nationals, so I guess that clarifies that the Future Blasts are in a different timeline. This is the multiverse. Also, we talked about the Home Run Derby. We talked about John Carlos Stanton earlier. On July 8th, John Carlos Stanton hit two home runs. One of which was an absolute bomb down the left field line, 447 feet. The other of which barely got out down the right field line, 322 feet. That's a difference of 125 feet. And as you may recall, on episode 2018, we did a stat blast about the greatest differential in distance in the StatCast era between home runs hit by the same player on the same day. And if you limit it to two homer games, the biggest difference was 119 feet between two homers J.D. Martinez hit in 2018. So Stanton easily exceeded that. 
that. However, in 2019, Aristides Aquino hit three home runs, and the greatest differential between the longest and the shortest was 125 feet, which is the same as Stanton's. So either the greatest difference or tied for the greatest difference, depending on your qualifiers. Just wanted to update you on that. I got a fun question from listener Alex, who said, since home run derby hitters swing every couple seconds, could two batted balls collide midair? It would need a moonshot on the first swing and a line drive on the next. So sort of Stanton's longer homer and a shorter homer, and maybe their trajectories would meet at the perfect time. I think it could be done. That being said, could three balls collide? A moonshot, an in-between ball, and a laser line drive back to back to back. I hope your answer is yes, but I suspect I know better. So I sent this to physics of baseball expert, Professor Emeritus Alan Nathan, and he said the first scenario is possible, but extremely unlikely. So he's saying there's a chance. A moonshot and a liner, those balls could collide. And if we were watching on TV, we wouldn't be able to tell. He said, I guess I'd have to think a bit about the three ball case. Now it's a three body problem. He didn't say it was impossible. I'll take it. It is eminently possible to support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad free and get themselves access to some perks. Dan Elfrink, Bobby Cotavalliel, Ryan Cutchin, Steve Simpson, and Nicholas Gleason. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, plus access to monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams, discounts on merch and ad-free fancrafts memberships and expedited email answers. Check out all the potential rewards at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site, and we will know that message is coming from a Patreon supporter. Oh, right this way. But anyone and everyone can email us, send us your questions and comments at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. Meg and I will be back to talk to you a little later this week. How can you not be Pedantic, a stat blast will keep you distracted. It's a long slog to death, but the short will make you smile. This is effectively why. This is effectively why.